This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Right now, I'm super motivated to work on my leg and hip flexibility for a climb I want to do in Waco next winter. And I need to be slightly more open in the hips to reach this foothold. And I know I can do it if I put in the work over the next year. Unfortunately, I hate stretching, but the great thing is that the Crimped app makes it easy. I just jump into the app, pull up their hip and leg flexibility workout. There's videos that show me exactly what to do. There's a built-in timer that tells me how long to hold each stretch, and I don't even have to think about it. So if you are a self-coached climber and you want proven workouts to improve Anything, bouldering, finger strength, endurance, flexibility, you name it, Crimped has you covered. So check out Crimped. Crimped is spelled C-R-I-M-P-D. That's crimp with a D at the end, and you can find it in the App Store for iOS or on Android, or you can use the web-based version at crimped.com, and it's totally free to try it out. Check out Crimped. That's crimp with a D at the end to get started with your training. This episode is also brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I've had on the show. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I'm rocking the chocolate flavor right now. The performance-boosting Endure-X and their delicious protein supplements, weapons-grade whey, and they have a plant-based protein called PowerPlex. If you want to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link that includes this coupon right there in your podcast app. So check it out. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Feels. Who doesn't like a good night's sleep? If you want an even better night's sleep, you can benefit from CBD. Feels is a premium CBD that will help you keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free and delivered directly to your door, and it naturally supports reducing stress and reducing anxiety, reducing pain, and it supports your sleep. I've been using Feels in the evenings for about two months now, and I love it. It's super easy to take. I just place a few drops of Feels under my tongue, wait for 30 seconds, and swallow, and it really helps me unwind and relax before going to bed. I sometimes have a hard time turning my brain off in the evenings, especially at the end of a long work day editing the podcast, and Feels helps me wind down and rest my mind. And I've definitely noticed an improvement in my sleep as well, which is a huge win. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash nugget, and you'll get 50% off your first order and free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S.com slash nugget to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash nugget. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is another climbing podcast host, 
My friend and comrade Ryan Devlin is my guest today. Ryan is a television actor, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a rock climber, and now the host of his very own podcast, The Struggle Climbing Show. Ryan's been on TV. If you're in your 30s, you've probably seen him on TV, whether you remember him or not. We talk about some of the shows he's been on in this episode. We talk about parallels between climbing and his acting life and acting career, and so many other things in this conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Ryan. He's a really fun and insightful guy. This was both a very entertaining conversation and he had some really great insights from talking to so many really high-level climbers on his own podcast. I was curious to hear what some of his personal biggest takeaways have been from interviewing some of the best climbers in the world. Ryan is in his 40s and just got into sport climbing in the last few years in the Red River Gorge, and he progressed from red pointing 511B to 512C in about a year. So that was really interesting to talk about as well. And if you are a 511 climber hoping to break into 512, I think you will find this conversation very, very interesting. I have one quick announcement and one quick request before jumping into today's episode. My announcement, if you're new to the podcast and you're overwhelmed by the amount of episodes I have on the feed and you don't know where to begin, I built a page on the website at thenuggetclimbing.com called Top Lists. If you go to the website, click on Episodes and click on Top Lists, you'll find all of my favorite episodes organized by category. So if you want to hear more about the history of climbing and listen to conversations with people like Ron Kauk and John Long and Peter Croft and many others, there's a category for that. If you're really into sport climbing, there's a category just for high-end sport climbing. There's a category for training. There's a category for mental game and mindset, for bouldering, whatever it is. Whatever you're into, there's a category and you can hear all of my favorite episodes with guests about those topics. So be sure to check that out, top lists at thenuggetclimbing.com. And then my request, if you are loving the podcast, I would really appreciate getting a review of the show. I don't ask for that very often. Many of you have sent in amazing reviews of the show on Apple Podcasts. Many of you have rated the show five stars on Spotify. I really appreciate that. It's super helpful. So if you could take a second, you don't even have to write anything. Just tap on that five stars if you love the show. That goes a really long way to helping grow the podcast and reaching more listeners who will benefit from these episodes. So yeah, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you guys for tuning in. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with actor, entrepreneur, rock climber, and podcast host, Ryan Devlin. I see you're back in your Estes Park co-working luxury extravaganza space that's right i'm in my recording booth it's fantastic my very own recording booth i don't think anyone else uses it i picture you surrounded by free beer and snacks at all times right now <laughs> getting the most out of your rent <laughs> yeah it's not not too far from the truth i've been like cleaning out the Lacroix from the refrigerator i, I they have to like restock Lacroix about twice as often as usual because of me <laughs> yeah. I love it. Where are you? I'm in my parents' basement. Nice. <laughs> uh, 
good, good familiar territory for me. I feel like my, I have a corporation, uh, you know, like when I became an actor, I became a corporation because you can just basically write off everything as an actor for tax purposes. If you're a corporation, like just like every vacation is research and in, in this kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, my, and then you have to pick a name for your corporation. So my, my corporation's name for, you know, I mean, since I started, it was like 15 or 17 years ago or something like that is my parents' basement productions. So here I am back in my parents' basement. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And you're, you're usually in your own basement. So what's going on today? What happened? So, you know, I'm down in my podcast closet slash utility room where I have been relegated. We have 30 rooms in our house. Not really, but it's like, you know, like a normal kind of Midwest size house. And um, somehow I'm, you know, in this utility closet in the basement, but that's where, that's where all the podcast magic happens for the struggle and, and all my zoom meetings and all of that. And I'm all comfy and set up. And, um, and then the whole thing went dark. So um, storms, big storms are rolling through right now. And it just knocked out the power for the whole neighborhood. Mm. So I packed up my kit. My wife took a picture. I'm going to send it to you. I packed up my whole kit, my <laughs> microphone and my computer and all my drinks and snacks and uh, rolled over to my parents, which is only a few miles away, but fortunately they have power. I hope I sound okay. You know, I don't have my mattresses and, and foam things taped to the walls um, here in my parents like I do at home. That's okay. It sounds great. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely be able to make it work. Your text cracked me up. You were in a way excited to go over to your parents' house. Cause I, you know, I was like, we can just reschedule, you know, I'm not like in a rush to get this thing recorded, but you're like, nah, it's okay. I'm always, uh, I always get free food when I pop by that way. They have the best junk food and you're yes. 43 years old. So I love that. I mean, it reminded me of like a 15 year old kid going, or like a maybe 19 year old kid going back from college to their parents' house to eat junk food. Yeah. We're all kids, right? <laughs> I like, guess I mean, so. I don't know if do, do you experience that too. Like, cause you, you like kind of home base, you know, back, back home, like out of your folks driveway. Right. You know, when, depending on the time of the, the year and the season and, you know, are you, uh, do you go grocery shopping and grazing in the kitchen? Uh, maybe, you know, I just like, I, th I feel like once, once you're within like your parents' home or like, this is the way I feel. I'm sure most people probably experience this, but like, it's like a time machine. You just like, you're a kid again. You're yeah. like, oh, cool. TV and donuts, you know? <laughs> I don't know if I revert quite that far back, but I, because <laughs> I, yeah, I'm always, I get home and I'm like, God, how am I going to stick with my way of eating? And that inevitably goes out the window to some degree. And I make a lot of exceptions when, when I'm at home, which is great. Of course, it's, it's really healthy and, and mentally good to do that. Um, the thing that always gets me is my mom's homemade raspberry jam. So when I go home, that's like the only time of year that I'm eating like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and toast and stuff like that because her jam is so good. I think it's like 90% sugar with some raspberries in it, you know, it's totally. just sugar water, but it's so good. Yeah. So that's the, that's my home junk food. That's my equivalent, I guess. That's the full-time machine for you. Like going back into PBJs. I think my parents in a sense <laughs> do it. Like it's like a it's like a bait station, you know, like a <laughs> like a camera trap, you know, out in the wild. And so, like, because the refrigerator is always stocked with like the beer that I like. Like my folks don't drink beer, but you know, my mom will like shoot me a text. She'll be like, "I saw this nice hazy IPA, you know, at the store," and so I picked up some. They're just in the fridge, and you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know, and then you know, cut to like you know David Attenborough, and it's like, oh, the 
the freelance actor is is grazing in the kitchen and it's like you know i'm peeking around the corner i'm like oh he's discovered the ipas and uh and then my mom jumps out and she's like you know bring the grandkids over so yeah i think they lure me in with um with donuts and beer and snacks and all the things i don't try to keep myself tempted by in my own house and uh you know it's a win-win that's brilliant. I mean, most most of the time, the grandparents' strategy is to go after the kids, you know, like stock all the junk food that the kids don't normally get to have at home. I love that they're just going after their 43-year-old son, though, in your case. That's it's kind of classic. They got them covered, too. They got all the all the junk for the for my kids as well. So, yeah, it's it's nice. It's nice having them close by. You know, I grew up in Michigan, and, um, and that's where they spent their entire lives. Uh, and then when Kara and I moved here. We lived in in Los Angeles for a long time, uh, but then when we had our son and we're planning to adopt our daughter, we um, we were like, "Man, what are we doing in LA? So loud and expensive and dirty and like just the pace of it is is so you, you just have to run faster on the treadmill to make ends meet." Mm. And so we kind of up and moved to Kentucky, where Kara grew up, and and her family's here. And I love it. And it reminds me a lot of Michigan. And, um, but my folks were always up, just still up in Michigan. And then I like conspired to move them here. And so like oh, found cool. a house in our neighborhood and putting an offer on it. And then, and then called them and was like, I got a house for you guys. I mean, I didn't buy the house. I was like, you, you know, I put in an offer. You guys need to get a loan <laughs> and get this house and come down here. Um, That's amazing. I wish I could have bought it for them. But then they like <laughs> said yes to their credit. You know, they they moved down here, and so now we're all just like within this little area, and it's it's so nice. I got to say. That's amazing. That's such a rare, you don't hear that very often this day and age that you and your wife and both your families are all in the same, the same place. That's so cool. Yeah, it's been way better than I ever thought. You know, when I w- finished college and, and decided to go into acting and move out to LA, you know, so many people just basically want to get the hell away from their home, you know, at that age. I think that's, that's normal. You just kind of like want to just spread your wings. And I just never thought I'd return to the Midwest, you know, being in Southern California and all the natural beauty that's around there, of course, is, is really kind of hard to beat. And, and of course, being in, in show business, that's kind of where you need to be um, for the most part. And so I just never like, I don't know, I just I never even considered living in like a neighborhood where my parents live and my wife's parents. And and it's just been awesome, you know. And, uh, you know, of course, I I benefit also from, by you know, being close to the Red River Gorge. So so I didn't do a full trade out um, hmm. at all um, on some of the outdoor beauty that we enjoyed in SoCal. Um, but it's kind of like a nice, it's like kind of like a nice mid forties existence right now. Like, I don't think we'll be here forever. We, we've got adventure in our blood, um, but where we're at right now with the kids and having the grandparents help and all that, it's, it's just been awesome. I can, you know, like on Sunday, I'm going to go to the red. we got some decent temps coming in, which, you know, for this time of year is like, Wait, we're talking degrees. in July. How is that possible? <laughs> like, yeah, decent relative. Low 90s. Right? So it's like, it's going to be like high 80s and only 65% humidity. You know, I like wow. texted all my buddies. I was like, <laughs> we, we got conditions. You know, it's like, you know, come, come October, we won't get out unless it's 55 degrees and single digit humidity. But right now we're like just itching to get out. So, um, so the grandparents are going to watch the kids and I can go climbing. So it's, nice. it's working nicely. That's great. Where are you in Kentucky? 
we're right outside of Louisville, um, kind of like in the country, like horse country, where a lot of the um, the like horse farms are for um, for like derby horses, race horses, and that kind of okay. thing. It's nice. It's like rolling green hills. It's it's kind of like northeast of Louisville. It's right along the Ohio River. We're not far from downtown. It's like a fifteen minute drive, and it's like two hours to the red. Um, so we do day trips, you know, we, we meet people there all the time that are in from Chicago and, you know, all over the place that they'll come in for the weekend, but we can just pop in for the day. And yeah, man, it's nice. It's a cool city too. I don't know if you, I think the last time we talked, you hadn't made it this far East, but we need to lure you out here at some <laughs> point in time. Maybe, uh, Drew Mack and I will conspire to, yeah. to get you out here and you could spend some time at the red and, and Louisville's cool. It's got a cool art, music, bourbon vibe to it. It's, um, it's much nicer than I had probably the caricature I had given it credit for in my mind coming from, you know, Santa Monica and being like, I don't know about, you know, Kentucky, but like, it's like a university town. It's, it's real hip. Um, I think it's kind of got like an Austin vibe, interestingly. Okay. That's interesting. Is, is, uh, is Louisville, Louisville. 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 <laughs> is Louisville. <Yeah. laughs> wow. Is it east of the red? It's um, west. Okay, because um, I've been to Lexington. Like, I've been yeah. to the Red. I've been to Lexington. I don't think I ever went to Louisville. Louisville. Yeah. There you go. Um, it's good. It's like it's like Nevada is not Nevada. A lot of people want to say Nevada, um, but they get they get bristled over that. It's Nevada. I, these are things I had to learn when I was on TV. You got to pronounce things right. So yeah, Louisville. You just kind of <laughs> got to swallow it all. Um, yeah, it's, we're only about an hour from Lexington. Lexington's rad too, college town, you know, much smaller than Louisville. Louisville's got, um, it's just kind of bigger. It's it's more of a cultural center. Um, but everything's pretty close here and, and tons of natural beauty. I've been super happy with it, man. I'm always struck whenever I talk to someone from the Midwest. Um, it just really reminds me how spoiled we are if we live in the West, you know? Like you're like, yeah, two hour day trip to the Red, it's no big deal. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> two hour day trip. When was the last time I lived somewhere where I had to drive two hours to go rock climbing? I, I don't even know if I can think of a single time in my life when I've, when I've done that. So I just am always impressed with Midwesterners and your willingness to just get after it. You know, people driving six hours from Indy to go to the Red or things like that. It's just always impressive to me. Totally. Or, or just people who... I mean, I feel so fortunate because, you know, we have world-class climbing within a day trip. Whereas who was it you were talking to? Was it Dylan Barks who was up in Michigan, you know, mm, and just like yeah. spray walling it in his garage and like, man, I grew up in Michigan. There ain't shit in Michigan. <laughs> you know, like if you want to, if you want to climb on rocks, you gotta, you gotta drive probably to the red, you know, like if you want to yeah. be on something good. So that's like seven hours, you know, six and a half hours. And I run into Michiganders all the time at the red. And so yeah, it's all relative, right? Like, right. When you live in your van and you can you can pop out the door and be and be at the crag, uh, a two hour drive doesn't sound that appealing. Um, but just like you said, in the West, there's typically you don't have to commute that far. Um, but I had no idea, you know, being in in LA, and I would climb mostly. I was climbing like trad stuff at um, Talk Eats and Suicide Rocks and that kind of thing, and, and Joshua Tree. Um, but there's some, there's some decent sport kind of in the Malibu area too, that I would go to every once in a while. Um, I just had, I had never imagined the scale or the scope of 
the Red River Gorge, you mm-hmm. know? So I was like, oh, that's cool. There's a little climbing, like, where we're going to live. And then I got out there and I was like, oh, my God, there's 2,400 routes out here. <laughs> like, it was just mind-boggling. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy with it. It's um, it's it's a heck of a area. That's awesome. Yeah, there's certainly lifetimes of climbing in the Red for the vast majority of us, you know, not for... Maybe not for like Alex Magos or something like that, but for the rest of us, it's plenty. <laughs> That's right. Plenty yeah, Drew, when I was talking to Drew, and you've of course talked to Drew as well. Uh, yeah, it was like he was like, yeah, I kind of climbed the red, and so it was time to move out to St. George. I'm like, yeah, there's only a few people who can say that. Yeah, you know, like totally. Yeah, the, re- the rest of us are going to be just fine at the red for as long and as high as we want to go. It's great to have you here, man. This is I've been looking forward to this. Um, it's fun to to turn the tables around because you and I have had a number of conversations and you just interviewed me for your show. And I actually don't know when that's gonna come out uh relative to this episode. I know you do seasons, so it might be it might be a while before that comes out, but it's fun. Yeah. Thanks for being here. I've been looking forward to doing this. I have a lot of um a lot of bullet points that span a lot of different topics on my in, in my notes here so i'm excited to dive into it well i'm thrilled to be here man i mean you know i'm a huge fan of the show and and of you i'm a patron of the show of course so Thank i you. get i get all the all the bonus content um which which i really enjoy and yeah i think your your interview which was awesome uh, it's probably coming out at around the same time so um uh, i think people will be able to, to, to get the two hander here. And yeah, man, it's a real treat for me to, to be on. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to you've, you know, been such a supporter of mine, um, kind of getting the struggle up, up and off the ground and, and now to be able to join this, the, the nugget here. Um, it's a, it's a cool thing. And I've, I've just gained a ton from your show as has the community, the, the interviews that, that you do not only like helping me with my climbing, but also just like are just really good, deep, in-depth character study interviews. And so um, I hope I don't uh, fall short of um, the wonderful oh, conversations that you've had. No, no, no. <laughs> we, have, we have so much that we can talk about. I mean, you and I, we've talked about rock climbing, but mostly podcasting in our conversations so far. You've already mentioned a couple of times that you're an actor. I mean, that's what I'm most interested in, I think, talking to you, because it's just such a far cry from like my entire paradigm, you know, like I've, I've had a few people on the show who feel like big celebrities to me in this narrow scope of climbing, but you're the first guest who I've ever been able to research on IMDb. You know, I was like looking through here, <laughs> all these like TV shows and things that you've been on that I've, that I've seen. And, uh, it's just so much fun, but I wanted to jump into your career and share a conversation that I had with Allison Vest. Actually, I was down in Waco Tanks this winter and got a chance to climb with her for a day. And we were in the parking lot. We're just kind of wrapping up the day, packing up our pads and stuff before we have to get out of the park. And I don't remember how it came up. I think somehow, I think maybe she was asking me like how I was making a living or something. And I mentioned, you know, the Patreon and all this other stuff, but that I also do some coaching and that I've been doing some podcast coaching. I don't know what the avenue was, but somehow you came up in the struggle, the struggle climbing show, um, you know, that we worked together, that I was helping you make this podcast. And she just told me this story. She's like, so she's really close friends with Alex Johnson. Yeah. uh, Who you have interviewed on your show. And she's like, yeah, I was talking to Alex and she like gets this email from this guy and she 
I think she had done the interview already before she was like, I swear to God, I recognize this guy. You know, like what, what is this from? And eventually they, they put it all together. And I just wonder if you could describe the TV show, Are You the One? And describe what your role is or was in the TV show, Are You the One? Because I just <laughs> got such a kick out of this story. Because <laughs> they, they had both watched it a lot. Like they knew a lot about you once they put it all together that that was uh, what they recognized you from. Oh my God, that's so funny. AJ didn't mention that at all to me, by the way, <laughs> when we were talking. So I don't know if she, if, whether she discovered it after the fact or beforehand and just didn't bring it up, but it's so great. Um, you know, it's funny being an actor because I, like, I've been on a ton of stuff, but I've never been on like a, a huge like breakout thing, right? So people recognize me more than they know my name. And so often what I get like at a grocery store or something like that is like, oh, hey, did we go to school together? Like, that's <laughs> kind of like the go-to. It's like, did we go to school together? You know, old high school, class of 99 or whatever. And I'm like, no. And then they keep like picking and picking and picking. I'm like, I'm actually, I'm, I've been on some TV shows and maybe that's it. Because like, I, I also don't want to assume that, you know, right, like right. be like the weirdo where I was like, I'm on TV. Of course you recognize that. <laughs> But you know, for so, people listening, it's lots of, it's shows that they would recognize like Law and Order, CSI, Grey's Anatomy, things like that. But a lot of supporting roles. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, I've been the murderer of the week on every single show that's on TV. <laughs> I mean, like, like it used to like, why, why is that? <laughs> I don't know. Do you like, like exude that? Do you seek out those roles or do you just exude some sort of like murderous energy when you're in interview or uh, auditions or something like that? I mean, yeah, I hope it's not typecasting um i hope it's like you know i mean for, in, in one regard actually it's like it's just a matter of practicality like all those procedural shows like all the the crime shows pretty much every guest star is the person who did it it's either the victim or the murderer right like you're not you don't come in and be the good guy you're just like either the bad guy or a dead guy um and i've, I've done both um but like i've been i was uh serial rapist on Veronica Mars. I was um, a murderer on CSI Miami. I was a murderer on CSI. I was a pedophile priest rapist on Law and Order. Wow. Um, I mean, there's there's like, and that's like just kind of start. I did play good guys on some shows like Grey's Anatomy and Cougar Town and, and some of these other shows I played good guys. But um, do you let your wife watch the these guys. watch these shows that you're in? Do you, does she get to watch these episodes? She, yeah, she has seen a lot of them. I mean, we get a kick out of them, you know, when sure. you come on, because every once in a while you're just like, it pops up and you're like, whoa, you know, that was fun. Um, <laughs> this is a long way around to getting back to, to Alex Johnson, by the way, but like, essentially, I'm glad that she, <laughs> what she recognized me from was, was, are you the one and not like, oh, was he the priest rapist? Um, because, you know, <laughs> the, the interview might've been a little bit, uh, taking a bit of a different turn if that were uh, the case. Um, so are you the one is a show that I hosted for five years is on MTV. I think it's still on um, just with a different host. And um, I actually thought that I, I think that's a cool show. I mean, it's like, it's, it consistently is on the top of the Netflix. So like, I think a lot of people are discovering it on Netflix right now because they Netflix just picked up the show. Um, I watched the trailer this morning and it, it does look, I mean, I'm not a big reality TV guy, but it does look very entertaining for sure. You know, it's kind of bachelor esque, like maybe even more drama going on. Yeah. 
It is. And, and, but behind it is a bigger, and you've got like this engineering mind, which I think um, is ultimately what elevates the show. And let me put elevate in like some air quotes, because it's literally like 20 drunk, 20 somethings, like just naked all the time. So, you know, let's, let's, let's take things in perspective here. But the conceit of the show is there's 10 guys and 10 girls who suck at dating. And I bring them together in this like exotic mansion and, and we shot in Hawaii, Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. And so it's like in some like really cool location. And I bring them together and I say, you all suck at dating. We've done a nationwide search and we've found your perfect match. That person is here, but we're not going to tell you who it is. And each week you need to hang out, date, talk, hook up, whatever you want to do and figure out who you think is your perfect match. This is based on like personality questionnaire sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. It was like pretty legit. We had these like matchmakers put them through all these personality tests and this kind of thing. Wow. And you know, I mean, there's also like TV magic to it because they're they also happen to be like six pack ab, you know, per like you know, absolute models. And so, you know, within reason, we found these people's perfect matches. And we say that person's here, but we're not gonna tell you who it is. And at the end of each week, we have this this matchup ceremony where they they kind of like choose who they think is their perfect match. And if they all get it right, if they go 10 for 10, they win a million bucks and the show's over. But if not, we don't tell them who was right and who was wrong. They go back to the house to try and figure it out. So it's kind of like this game mastermind for, for anybody out there who's, who's played it, where you don't know the set that you're trying to match. And all you know are the correct or incorrect. So you might reshuffle the deck. They might get five right one week and then two right the next week. Mm. And then seven, because you're reshuffling. You have no idea who's right or wrong. So you make a couple switches. And in the middle of it is emotion. And so you switch. I say, I'm, my, I'm your perfect match. And so you start to have real feelings. Maybe you're falling for this person and then you find out next week, oh, wait, it might not be us because we only got two right and we stayed together. And so mm. anyway, it was like, it was that plus like a dumpster fire soaked in fireball liqueur. And so it was <laughs> very entertaining and um, I really had a good time doing it. And now we know a little bit about the viewing habits of some of the best uh, rock climbers in the world in Allison Best and Alex Johnson. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah, and it sounds like they've watched quite a bit of this show, which is hilarious. And I actually, um, I reached out to Allison just this morning and asked if she had any questions for you. Oh, God. Because I'd forgotten the name of the show. I was like, hey, what was that show you were talking about that Ryan Devlin was on? And she's like, which one? You know, I think she's... <laughs> Well, actually, this, this is a total aside, but she was like, he's also on this new show called Is It Cake? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I look into that and it's this show, it's this show where, <laughs> I, I mean, the conceit of the show is ridiculous. Like, the, you know, the, I watched the trailer, it's like two minutes long and the host comes out and he's like, here's a bowling ball. Here's a bowling ball, but it's actually a cake. And he slices this bowling ball and it's a cake that's like beautifully decorated into a bowling ball. Anyway, I don't know how that's a TV show, but it is. But I was like, that is not Ryan Devlin, but it definitely looks like you. It's this guy <laughs> named Mikey Day, who's like, Mikey an, Day. yeah, he's an SNL guy. Yeah. Um, he's definitely your doppelganger, but. Yeah, he's a more successful me. So thanks, Allison. <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, she, she, she can really build up an ego and then, and then really tear it down. <laughs> <laughs> I told her that and she was like, oh, that's really, that, like, that's a relief because he's actually really annoying on that show. So to your credit, Mikey Day, she thinks is more annoying than you. Oh, 
good. Um, good. I'm still in for good graces then. Oh, God, that's so funny. <laughs> but anyway, so back to Are You the One? I asked if she had any questions for you. And she wrote, well, Are You the One? is about finding your perfect match based on questionnaires. So I want to know if he thinks it's possible to find a partner based on quantifiable metrics. It's a deep question, Allison. I thought she was just going to be like, you know, how many people did you have, did you see taking showers? And, and the answer is all of them. I saw all of them taking showers. There were cameras in every room. Um, to answer that question, based on my experience as host of RE1 and also just being like a human, <clears throat> I think chemistry is incredibly important in creating a relationship. Sometimes they flame out and sometimes they last forever. And so the questionnaire part, I think, is what comes in to help you, not the questionnaire part, but like essentially personality compatibility can help you understand when the chemistry runs out, will this thing have legs? Mm. You know, can we get through the thick and the thin and the ups and the downs? I'm talking about, you know, I've been married for 13 years now and, you know, ex experiencing that firsthand, like the new, new relationship chemistry doesn't last forever. And that's why you see a lot of people in my in my profession of acting or whatever have these like really, you know, just incredibly hot, passionate relationships with people that they're on set with or something like that because there's sure. chemistry there. Right. Um, but then they just they just flame out when you know life gets real because um, they so didn't I start with I, a questionnaire, is what you're saying? Because they didn't start with a questionnaire. They didn't come on my show. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, you know, not to get, I'm not, I'm not a Dr. Ruth here um, type. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about relationships, um, though I did host uh, some seasons of it, and so I saw kind of what worked and what didn't. And I would say that um, in my experience, the short answer is no. I think I think it could probably bring together people who have a better chance than a random drawing of being compatible and maybe making something interesting happen, but I just can't, you can't make up for chemistry. Just that, that excitement about like hitting eyes with somebody and being like, wow, that, that just got me, you know, in the gut or that just gave me goosebumps. So I already told Allison that she found her perfect match. So I think, I think they're good. I mean, I locked, <laughs> I locked them in. So she's all set. Good. <laughs> Good to know. Good news for you, Allison. <laughs> that was a much more insightful answer and question, I guess, than I had expected. I kind of thought that would be funny, but um, that's, yeah, thanks for that. That's actually, I think, really helpful. And it's it's interesting. It reminds me of a book that I read a few years ago, uh, actually written by a comedian named Aziz Ansari. He wrote a book called Modern Romance. Yeah. Really interesting book, actually. He like kind of <clears throat> he kind of examined and compared and contrasted modern dating to dating in our parents' and grandparents' generations, and then also dating cultures around the world. I think he looked at the U.S. and Argentina and Japan and France, I think, were the four countries in the book. Cool. But um, yeah, there was actually some really insightful takeaways from the book. But one of the things that that you're reminding me of right now is he had this whole chapter... I hope I'm getting this right. I think it was from this book, but he had this whole chapter on online dating and the efficacy of online dating. And his takeaway was, it's a great way to answer some of those initial compatibility questions like you're talking about, but like, don't get swept up into texting with someone for weeks and weeks and months and months. Like you need to just actually meet them sooner rather than later, because you'll know within 10 minutes of talking to this person, if you have chemistry and if you don't have that, you can have this like two month long 
I don't know, cupid.com or whatever text relationship and it might not go anywhere um, because you get together with a person and there's just no, n- nothing else there. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting. And, and also that person, you know, that you think is a, a 27 year old fit kayaker is actually a 52 year old, 280 pound gamer who's been catfishing you. So I would say right. sooner is better on getting together when you think you've found that, that one true one. And I will say that my sister um, met her husband on match.com and um, they, you know, they're awesome and have a couple great kids, my kid's age. And, uh, and so like, I've seen it work on that side too. And it's gotta be hard to, um, it's gotta be hard in this day and age to date and, and that kind of thing. I'm like talking like I'm some like, you know, old person that's been out of the game for long, but I don't know. You've been married. I've been married for 13 years. I kind of do feel like I've been out of the game for a long time. Sure. So, yeah. Um, when you were, you were dating pre apps, you know, pre dating apps and websites and stuff. I mean, I even feel that way. I'm 33 and like most of my dating has been before or outside of dating apps and stuff. And it all still feels like kind of new and strange to me even. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it simultaneously, I think makes things easier. Um, you know, makes things easier to like probably hook up and to meet people and like, just go out and have some fun, but it, you know, finding like true deep love is probably as hard as it's ever been. Um, or, or maybe harder, you know, Mm. good luck, everyone out there. (laughs) Shoot me an email if you, if you, if you need any more tips. (laughs) Wow. I love, I love the The, direction we're already dating podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I know we should do a spinoff. Um, there we, there we go. Let us know you guys, if you want that podcast let us know we'll make it happen okay but this is a climbing podcast we're talking on a climbing podcast which we should probably relate it back to climbing at least a little bit sure i have no idea if these questions will work but i am really curious i know nothing about the tv and movie world aside from listening to armchair expert podcast with dax shepherd and hearing some of the behind the scenes from him because he's an actor he's married to an actor and his best friend is an actor and they all talk about kind of the um, you know, the, the behind the scenes stuff, they talk shop a lot. So I've gotten some, some kind of clues from that, but are there any similarities between the climbing world and the TV and movie world? Ooh, cool question. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the climbing world, um, well, we'll start with the TV world because that's that's the first world I went into. I started um, acting before I started climbing. I, I God, I wish I'd started climbing earlier. Um, but don't we all say that? <laughs> you know, we all um, we all wish we had that like pre-puberty tendon development. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, I was a child actor and not a child climber. So we'll 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 go in order. You know, the acting world is um, like you're on your own. You know, there's no there is no kind of formula for success. There's like working your ass off and being um, very self-disciplined will give you the best chance at getting lucky as you can. And ultimately that's really what you need in order to get a break. And then you got to be hopefully pretty good at what you do and not a total asshole. And then you can keep working. And I think climbing, you know, in, in some regard, depending on what kind of climbing you're into, but like, I'm mostly into sport climbing myself. Like, again, there's no, super clear formula here. I mean, we know certain training interventions that are going to work or nutrition things like we can, you know, we can try to create the best path we can for ourselves, can work our asses off. And then when you're trying to send the proj, 
you're basically putting yourself in the best position to get lucky. You know, if it's really a limit project, like it's, um, it's how do you take that low percentage move to a slightly higher percentage move? And I, I, I kind of, I kind of experienced that in the acting world, you know, you go on these auditions and it's a numbers game. And so I would go on, you know, 30, 40, 50 auditions before I'd book one thing. And so it's a lot of failure. It's a lot of rejection. It's a lot of maybe not quite being the right person for it, or maybe being the right person for it. And, and it just not quite coming together on that day. And I think, you know, Chris, Chris Hampton had, has that book that, that came out called The Hard Truths that like, there's all these great infographics on it. And one of them is essentially like, what, what are the conditions necessary in order to get the send? And it's like, you have to be on the top of your game. The weather has to be on the top of its game. The conditions, the mental side, like all of these things have to align if you're going to get like the, the send, the project. And so kind of being an actor is kind of like projecting, just basically go out and get rejected a whole bunch. And then every once in a while, everything aligns and, and you get the thing. And so you have to have kind of, um, there's gotta be a bit of a process mindset to it. You know, Hazel Finlay talked a lot about that. And, um, when I interviewed her kind of on the mental game kind of recap from, from season one. And, and of course you and Hazel talk often, um, she's kind of like the Jedi master with all this stuff, but, but she talks a lot about process mindset it's not about the outcome. Right. And so if it were only about this end, if it were, or if acting were only about getting the job, you know, it's kind of a recipe for burnout or, or, um, unhappiness, you know? So I, I, I tried to find as an actor, I tried to find the joy in just preparing for an audition and going out there and feeling scared and nervous and overcoming that and having some fun with it. And whether I got it or not, did I become a better actor? Did I learn something? Did I learn a new trick? Did I make a new relationship? Did I, you know, just not totally shit the bed? Um, and I think climbing, you know, climbing can be that as well. Cause you're just not going to go out every time and, you know, and get the big green check mark. So yeah, that was a really interesting question. I don't know. I don't know if that, um, <laughs> maybe that was like a little too, uh, out there with my answer, but no, that's, that's kind of what came to mind. It's great. It actually, it's interesting. It reminds me of something that Steve McClure said, actually, we were talking, we were having a conversation about mutation, um, first ascent, 9A, you know, 14D. It yeah. went unrepeated for like 20 years or something. Will Bozzi finally did it. It's probably 515. <clears throat> and I believe it would have been the first 515 in the world if if it is or it is and was 515, just crazy. But I think we were talking about that route and he's like, I don't know, I just kind of fluked it, to be honest. And, uh, you know, in his in his way, in his delightful accent, just so humble. But I called him out. I was like, I think that's bullshit, you know, like you didn't just get lucky. And he elaborated and he's like, well, you kind of make your own luck. You know, I was, I feel like I got lucky when I sent it and it was just this spoof, but I was the guy who was trying to get up at seven in the morning and called 20 partners until I could find somebody and kept pushing the day, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that, um, that working hard to create your own luck thing. It's funny. I mean, he, he said almost the exact same thing that you just said about acting. So it's, it's really interesting. I love that. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the business we're in when we're, when we're talking low percentage sends and, and that kind of thing is, you know, you're just not always going to get it, but that kind of what keeps it's, it's what keeps it fun too. Yeah. You know, as long as you don't have that expectation. 
I wanted to ask you how you deal with rejection. So if you go to 40 auditions before you finally land something, I mean, this can relate to climbing, acting, and dating. You know, this can be the first topic that we cover in uh, the Nugget Struggle dating podcast. But (laughs) (laughs) when you get rejected, you know, it's it's so easy for us to create these stories in our head that it's personal, that it's about us, that we're not good enough, things like that. So what do you tell yourself if you go to an audition and it doesn't work out to reframe that and turn it into a positive thing or a motivating thing or just... You know, how do you reframe it so you just don't feel shitty about yourself after 40 letdowns? Yeah, it's hard. You know, like there's the answer that I that I idealize or that I that I aspire to. And then there's like the answer that's kind of more the reality. And the reality is, is that whenever you get invested in anything, enough to want it, enough to work hard, it is personal, you know? So you can't fully insulate yourself from that whatever it is it could be a job interview you know not doesn't it's not just an audition it could be absolutely anything anything you're passionate about sports game you know you could be 15 years old and super invested in like your high school lacrosse game or whatever like you know when you're when you pour yourself into something um it hurts to not have it go the right way and so especially early on for me as an actor i i took the rejection very poorly very personally um, I hate to lose. I was always really competitive in sports and, you know, school and that kind of thing, played hockey and lacrosse and just like, just hated losing and felt that as an actor as well. And as an actor, maybe even more so because like, they're, they're truly saying no to you, <laughs> you know, like, like they didn't like my face. They didn't like my voice. They didn't like the way I thought this character should be played, that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's hard to not take it personally in some regard, but if you take it really hard as some of my actor friends did like they couldn't they couldn't stick with the game they got out because it just ate them up and so pretty quickly i started to develop tools to help myself through it the the biggest one maybe being a somewhat falsified but enough to the point where i could convince myself it was true air of not caring you know ah like i'd kind of like shit on projects, you know, like I'd get a script for a show that would like change my life to be the lead on or something like that. But I'd read it and I'd just be like a really tough critic. I'd just be like, nah, this isn't that good. I mean, I'll go in for it, you know, I like be good, be a good job, but like, it's not awesome, you know? And so I'd kind of, um, Hazel talked about this too. Uh, I forgot. Alex Magos talked about this a lot in the interview that I had with him on the struggle where he basically like would go up to a rock because he used to beat himself up all the time when he wouldn't get it. That, that film rock punked like really documented it well. Like, I mean, he was, he was very hard on himself when he wouldn't pull things together quickly. And then he, his shift, as he said, you know, we were chatting was like, he just started saying to himself, doesn't matter if I send or I don't send, the world's going to spin tomorrow. There's going to be other rock climbs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of him, he was, didn't really believe that, but it kind of helped to just like put it in perspective. And so I do that a lot. I rip something like, nah, it's just, this show's probably not going to get picked up or it'll get canceled after a season. And so then I'd go in there and it would seem like there were less stakes. And when there's less stakes, there's more confidence. And when there's more confidence, it's just everything's easier. You're funnier if it's a comedy you're you're more grounded if it's a drama. The producers that are judging you on how good you're going to be, 
feel that confidence. It's like dating, right? It's like anything. Confidence is really hard to um, create, but if you care less, then it, it can kind of come through. So yeah, that's how I would kind of insulate myself from, from that constant rejection is essentially try not to care too much about it. And then on the flip side, it was trying to build a um, happiness that was not rooted in the outcome of any of those things. Mm. So if the only thing that can make you happy is getting the audition or getting to the top of a rock climb for that matter, then there's just so much more weight on that, right? It, it, but I I volunteered. That was a huge one for me. So I did a lot of volunteer work, um, worked with this organization of camps that Paul Newman started called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camps that were free camp for kids who were um, you know, facing like life-threatening or terminal um, illnesses. And so it's just camp, but it's like all kids who have cancer or all kids who have diabetes. And so they come together and they're not different in that sense, which is really cool. It's like, I'm not like the one kid with cancer. Everybody here's got cancer. And so there's volunteer nurses and doctors and camp counselors. And then you just have an awesome week at camp. It's just like normal camp. You do like archery and you throw, have food fights and all this stuff. <laughs> and so I started being like a, like a volunteer camp counselor there and getting into climbing was really huge. And basically like filling up my happiness well as much as possible so that, you know, book the job or don't book the do- job, it became less uh, impactful on me personally and, and my happiness. Mm. Now, sometimes it was like, I am minutes away from living in my car because I haven't gotten a job in a while. And so like at some point in time, you have to, you have to pay bills. So you start to feel that pressure. But in terms of just kind of the personal side of it, I think that really helped, really helped to, to not pin my happiness or my self-worth to whether I got a job or not. Mm. Thanks for that. That's great. Another long answer. Sorry, man. It's like so long-winded. No, it's really good. I mean, you're, you're, you're doing a really good job of answering the next questions that I have. Um, I'm going <laughs> to, I have these two questions. I'm going to ask them anyway. I think you just did a great job of covering them, but just curious if you have any additional thoughts, especially on the second part of this, but I, I had wanted to ask you, are there any lessons you've learned from acting that have carried over into your climbing? And then on the flip side, are there any lessons that you've learned as a rock climber now that have fed back into your acting career in any way? Does that bring anything additional or new to, to mind for you? I think maybe the inverse of it, you know, cause I do think we, you know, we talked a bit about kind of like how acting relates to climbing in that sense. Um, you know, how has, how has climbing maybe impacted my acting? And I actually think it probably goes beyond that. Like uh, I had a debilitating fear of falling when we moved out to Kentucky and, and I started climbing steeper stuff at the red because, you know, f- for the start of my climbing career, it was all like trad dad stuff and, you know, five, six, five, seven, five, eight, maybe five, nine, you know, climbing pretty at or below my ability, placing gear and like slab granite and that kind of thing. And then, we, we, so never falling essentially, you know, for, for those who, who haven't done a lot of that, it's just like, you just don't want to fall. Like, I don't know if I placed that nut properly. Let me not test it. Let me just like keep climbing. <laughs> right. Remember, like the first trad route I ever did that I ever led was this five, five at Joshua tree called the blob. And it's like this crack that goes up and it's not hard. And I placed all these pieces going up it. And I was like, I'm like, I'm going to sew this thing up. And I was like slotting in all these nuts. I, I think I used like a cam. Um, Cause I was like, no, I can place nuts. I'm, I'm awesome. <laughs> Get to the top. 
And my buddy comes up behind me and he goes, every single piece walked out. Oh, <laughs> like, I was, wow. I, I basically like soloed the blob. I was so <laughs> terrible <laughs> at placing gear that I, um, you know, my first trad lead was essentially a free solo. So, <laughs> you know, the, the idea for, for me at that time was like, okay, don't climb anything hard enough where I probably could fall on the gear. Gear's gotten a lot better since then, and I've gotten better at placing it. So, you know, I'm, <laughs> I don't quite prescribe that anymore. But then we moved out to the red, and it's all like really steep. It's all bolted, but I didn't have a lot of experience on that. And so I was totally gripped climbing past the bolt. And I, I know this is common. I mean, you know, Hazel talked a lot about this. Emily Harrington talked about it when I, you know, chatted with her. And I think everybody feels that that fear at some point in time. Most of the pros were past it out of necessity, you know, and just exposure. Um, but it was really, really hard for me. So I spent like a full year working on the kind of the, the mental game aspect of that. And I mean, we can talk about that if we want to talk about it or not. And in, in kind of, as we dive more into climbing, but as it relates to, um, kind of acting or, or anything, um, in, in the rest of my life, I, some of the tools that I developed for that have really applied like hmm. breathing techniques really understanding and uh, kind of an objective before getting into it um, and really understanding kind of the, the actual risks um, and not maybe like the emotionally fueled risks, gratitude, bringing like a strong sense of gratitude to something to help try to undercut some of the, the nerves and the fear. And so I, I use those tools like in life. I think, mm. I think overcoming a, a fear, whatever it is, a fear of spiders, you know, what, like overcoming any fear, you develop like a self-confidence and a resilience in some, some tools that carry over. And, um, that was really the case with, with fear of falling. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And it's one thought that just came to mind. It's really interesting. I think a lot of people that climb at the red and start there, it's funny how they have the exact opposite experience. Like if you start out climbing steep things and taking these big lobs into empty space and knowing that you're not going to hit the wall, it feels terrifying to start climbing vertical things or slabs, you know? Right. But I had a similar experience to you. Like I, I had sport climbed for years at Smith Rock before I went to the red for the first time or really started trying any steeper sport climbing. And uh, there's something totally different and totally terrifying about just plummeting into the void you know, like right. there's a security in knowing that you're going to be right up against the wall, even if you know that you might smack into it. Like, it's nice to just know that the wall's there and just dropping into empty space is, uh, yeah, it's really different. It took me quite a while. I, I don't know if I, I, I think maybe now I'm like used to it, you know, but it took years. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to, for, and know. it's, yeah, I think it's, it's such a, it's such an accomplishment when you can take that thing and, and turn it into a fun experience, which has been, mm -hmm. you know, over the last couple of years, that's been the evolution for, for me at least. And I think it's for, for a lot of people who stick with it um, and work to get through it. And now it's like, I'll get to the top of something and I'll do victory whips on purpose, you know, 15, 20, 25 foot um, swings, knowing that it's fine. You know, it's a perma draw that I'm in 12 feet below me. So I'm going to, you know, yeah, it's going to be a, big ass bounce, but it's going to be really fun. And like, I never, you know, I, like I was terrified at falling at a bolt, you know, when we first started climbing out here. So, um, yeah, it's really cool to be able to work through that and, 
um, and now have that. And now I'm more interestingly to your point that you just said, now I'm more sketched out on like vert and slap. Cause I'm like, Oh man, I'm just going to like cheese grate down yeah. this thing, you know, <laughs> or I'm going to break my ankles spiking into the wall or, you know, I'm, I'm now so used to beautiful, soft, airy catches that it's kind of gone the other way. Right. Right. Yeah. I know. It's funny how the things that become comfort zone, they're, they're not permanent, you know, like we lose a little bit of that. It comes back, thankfully. But yeah, if you don't do something for a long time, it's, it, feel, it can feel really scary and uncomfortable when you go back to it. But yeah, thanks for all that. That's really interesting about breathing and gratitude and, and how you use those other tools to, to help with fear of falling. That's really interesting. I can see how that would feed back into so many other things in your life. Yeah, for sure. I think climbing does that for a lot of us. I want to ask you how you got into climbing. So you started at age 33, which is my age right now. You were an actor in LA. Tell me about your first outdoor climbing experience. Because it's interesting to me. I think the only other person that I've talked to on the show who started climbing at Talk Heats was John Long. So I'm like, wow, this is like an old school way to get into climbing. Made me really curious. Because um, I, I had known you as a Red River Gorge climber. So I was like, huh, I'm surprised by right. that. Yeah, yeah it's, I, when I, I interviewed Lynn Hill on the show and like that's where like she was also like you know talkie suicide joshua tree and like we totally geeked out over it it, it does kind of have this throwback it's like stone masters you know um very original um like routes out there which is another thing because like a five nine is fucking nails you know like it's like that <laughs> old school like i'm like oh cool it's a five nine and i'm just like gripped and freaking <laughs> out um, as that was the ceiling of, of the grading system back in that day. So, yeah, I mean, I got into climbing. This might be a little bit of a tangent here. Um, but climbing itself came to me in the gym where I think a lot of people are introduced to, to, to climbing. Um, it wasn't long after that, that I, that I went out on my first day that we can talk about, cause it was kind of a wild first day, but I had, um, I had started this, this company, um, that's like a, a snack bar food company called this saves lives. And, um, it's like this give back company that, that makes like really yummy stuff. And we're at, we're everywhere, you know, it's, it's gotten big, but at, at the start of the company, um, this was back in 2013, I want to say, or 2012. Um, anyway, a little while ago, I was like, we were all doing everything. It was me and, and Kristen Bell, who is one of the co-founders, you know, Dax's wife, you mentioned, uh, uh armchair expert and, uh, they're, they're great people. I did a TV show with Kristen a long time ago and we became really good friends. And we started this company together with some other actor friends. And, you know, the whole point was to give back. It was like for every product sold, we donate a meal to a child in need around the world. And I'm really proud of it. Um, but as, as things are in like the early days, it's like all hands on deck. I was putting in 15 hour days, um, every day to try and get this thing off the ground. We're just bootstrapping the whole thing. And so I couldn't shut off my mind. And it was like, I was going crazy. And Kara, my wife was just like, you, you have to, you have to do something. You have to figure something out because like, you're, you're just like not a healthy person right now. And so I found myself like, okay, oh, so I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta exercise. And so I started going to this LA fitness, just like your local kind of, you know, dumpy gym and I'd be on a treadmill or I'd be doing like some bench press or whatever. And all the while I would just be thinking about work. I'd be like in spreadsheet land, or I'd be like thinking about investor calls that I wanted to make. And it was not a release at all. And right next door was this rock climbing gym. 
called Rock Creation. It's super old school. It's in Santa Monica. Like anybody who's gone through there has, you know, now we have like Sender One um, over by LAX. That's like the mega. But um, this was prior to that. Like it was just Rock Creation. And, um, you know, it's a nice little like local climb gym. And so I walked in there instead of going to LA Fitness, I walked in there and I was like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but like, can I, can I try this? And he's like, yeah, you know, dude, they're like, just let me climb for free for the day. And it was the first time. And I cannot remember how long I wasn't thinking about work. Mm. You know, I was just fear of falling. (laughs) This is like where it helped like fear of falling replaced any real estate in my brain that I had available to think about work, to think about like the responsibilities I had on this new company that I was starting. And it was like, it just was this aha moment, man. And I know a lot of people have experienced it. Um, so I won't belabor it, but it was like, it changed my life. I was like, holy shit, this hmm. is it. And um, some buddies that um, I had known from uh, one of them from, from back in Michigan, um, these guys, Jeff and Brian were, were climbers, had been climbers um, for a while. And they were into trad. They were doing some really cool stuff. They climbed Lost Arrow Spire at Yos and, and like we're putting up some some pretty good stuff um, like at Joshua Tree. And after I had climbed at the gym for a little while, I reached out to them and I was like, hey, can I tag along with you guys, you know, on, on your next outing? And they're like, of course, which was so cool. And so we went out to Takis and um, and then we did like a full like, a, I don't know, it was like a multi pitch was four, uh, four pitches, I think. I forgot the name of the route now. Um, left ski track maybe or open book um i'd have to look it up but it was like a real moderate you know five seven or something like that multi-pitch and um that was my first time on on real rock and it was i mean it was just awesome you know it was just moving over rock being in nature i've just what's always drawn me to outdoor climbing has been just to be in nature and to hear the birds and feel the breeze more so than like trying hard i just love to be out there and exposed and I, I love granite and, you know, I don't know. I just like, I do a lot of read like John, I read all of John Muir's stuff and it just like, I just felt like I was like, you know, just connected, connected to nature in a way that like, you know, Muir would have been, or, or these people that were, you know, really out there adventuring without much knowledge of what's to come. Cause I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just kind of like following these guys. Um, so it was really like kind of a life-changing experience. And <laughs> so, you know, the, the funny story of it, was um we're on our we're going up the last pitch so we're probably i don't know 400 feet up or something like that a few hundred feet up we're up we're up high you know like higher than anything i'd ever done and i'm coming i'm I'm following up last i'm cleaning the gear and so i'm on this hanging belay you know like just got my feet on this like ledge just hanging out enjoying the view not feeling too scared or anything like that i felt super safe these guys like took such good care of me they like talked me through all the systems and that really made an impression too they never once made a joke about like you know i hope the gear's right or anything like that you know like they were just like really calming and confident for for somebody that was having their first experience which i think is a great tip for anybody who's listening like if you ever taken somebody out for the first time like the jokes are not good, you know, like just, <laughs> yeah. just, just be, just be solid, just mm. be super confident. Um, but anyway, we're hanging there and I hear a helicopter and I'm like, Oh, weird. And so I'm looking up, I'm looking all around. I'm, you know, looking over overhead as you do for a helicopter. 
like, where's this helicopter? It's super loud. It's got to be right here, right above my head. <laughs> I look, then I look down and it's coming up from below me. Whoa. And it's such a weird experience. I don't know if you've ever looked down on a helicopter, Steven. I don't think I have. No, no. It's like, yeah, who does? I mean, you know, it's just, you never look down on it. And so it was the weirdest, most almost disorienting feeling where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm above the helicopter <laughs> and it comes up from below me. It's like a scene out of cliffhanger. It comes up from below me and it hovers right at me and like close. Like it's like, like the wind is whipping and whatever, the, the door slides open and the rescue people are in there and they, they give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I'm like, do I need to, do I, I don't I know the proper hand signals. I haven't studied this, but I'm like, I'm good. I, you know, like put my thumb up and, um, and they're like, okay. And they'd like peel away and they go around and I start climbing. It's my turn to climb and I'm going up and then we, we get up to the top and, um, we see like the long, like rescue line come down with a, with a guy hooked to it and he's swinging all over the place or she, I don't know, they have a helmet on and shouldn't assume that it was, it was a man. The, the rescuer was swinging all over and like gets swung into this tree, like oh. smacked into it. And then like lowers down and gets this person. And they did this, this rescue um, a person had, had hurt themselves really bad and got that person on the stretcher and hooked him to the thing. And I got video of this. I'm going to send it to you. You do <laughs> okay. such good social media. You do such good stuff on like, Oh, your, I'll pass it on. Instagram. I'll pass it on to Stevie. I can't take credit for any of it. I'll I'll just let her handle it. But yeah. Well, she does a great job. Yeah. Like I've got this video of like this helicopter, like, you know, basically like picking this person up off the side of the mountain. And then we hike down. I know the story's getting super long. Feel free to cut it out. <laughs> but we hike down off the top. It was like the greatest experience of my life. I climbed to the top of this thing. It's this multi-pitch. I'm like one with the rock. I'm feeling like a new human being. And we get down there and we come across. It's like the the approaches at Takis are pretty heinous. It's like, you know. 45 minutes of switchback, 45 degree hiking. I puked the first time that Oof. morning when we were hiking up, I puked. Um, <laughs> you know, we like stopped at McDonald's at 5 a.m. We left, we <laughs> yeah. left Santa Monica at like 3 a.m. to get out there at sunrise. It was like, it's, you know, it was a pretty long day. But anyway, it's a hell of a hike. And so we get down there and there are all these prisoners in jumpsuits at the trail. There's like, 30 of them and they're like neon, you know, prison uniforms. And, you know, I come to learn later that's like a low security um, local prison that are there. The prisoners are trained in like mountain rescue. And so they're like volunteers. And so the person who had been injured, the climber who had been injured was, was rescued onto the stretcher. And for some reason, not flown away, they were lowered down to the, like the base of the cliff there. And then the, this group of like inmate rescuers, so cool, formed like this, like chain gang and like passed like our bucket brigade and like passed this woman who had gotten injured down the trail. And it was just like such, I mean, it's like the full experience. I was like, holy shit, this is what rock climbing is. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Totally. Yeah. Not your typical day, but it was it was incredibly memorable. You know, the climbing, the scenery, just the epic nature of it. And then like the helicopter and then seeing like, like humanity come together to help this person. Mm. Like the redemptive aspect of these, you know, these these prisoners that were that were, you know, having an opportunity to help in a really significant way, help impact somebody's life in a positive way. I mean, it was just like 
It was totally awesome. So, you know, how could you not be hooked after that? I was like, I went home and I was like, I'm going to be a pro rock climber. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I realized that it was like very weak and already in my mid thirties. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> well, I want to ask about your progression with climbing because you, uh, something that I have from my notes here and from talking to you too, like I know that you've really shot up in, in sport climbing and in the grades and gained a whole new interest in training and progression and things like that just in the last few years in your 40s. So tell me what that's looked like. I mean, did you spend a decade out in California climbing granite and just kind of doing the trad dad thing? And um, yeah, how, how long have you been? Remind me how long you've been back in Kentucky and how long have you been pursuing sport climbing and what has your progression looked like in the last handful of years? We've been here for four years. Uh, and yeah, to your earlier point, like out west, I would climb at the gym uh, to just kind of like try and stay strong. We had like a crack. There was a crack. I did a lot of crack climbing. So I had my gloves and, you know, that's kind of the climbing that my buddies did. And you tend to just do what the people who have all the gear and are willing to let you tag along do. And so these guys were into crack climbing. And I was like, cool, I'm into crack climbing. Let's go. Um, so, yeah, it was very much that. I, I didn't even really know what training was. I, I didn't have like a hangboard or, you know, like I was just like climbing boulder problems at the gym or working on the crack on like an auto belay and then going out with the guys. Um, and that was good for me. Like I, I, my main, the, the kind of my main benefit or, or what I valued the most out of the experience, um, certainly at that time was having a full day in nature with my phone in the car. And getting away from the stresses of work and life and just, you know, connecting and breathing and trying hard, but not too hard, you know, cut to moving to Kentucky. And now I'm, you know, 40 and like, oh God, you know, there's no crack climbing at the red. But that's not true. There is, there is some, but like, you know, again, it's, it's the people that you meet. So I met these new guys at the gym that are my, that are my climb bros now. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that I met them, like, just like. I just pounced on them. I was just at the gym here and like, I saw guys kind of my own age and I was like, Hey guys, will you be my friend? And, um, and they were like, took pity on me essentially. And, and <laughs> now, now we're like, you know, good friends and climb buddies. And, um, anyway, they were into sport climbing, like steep stuff at the red. And so I went out there and that's when I like recognized very quickly. Like I wasn't equipped mentally with the fear of falling, which we talked about, but especially physically, like I just, climbing steep stuff is obviously very different than climbing slab granite cracks. And so that's when I was like, okay, I want to do this. I, I want to have great experiences out here. I know there's incredible climbs that are out of my reach right now. I want to make them in reach and I'm kind of type a, and like, I want to try to do the best that I can at everything that I do. And so that's when I started training. So I was 40. 41, maybe. Um, and I started listening to a ton of your shows, you know, like that was kind of when my main jumping off points was like, I devoured Eric Hurst's training for climbing podcasts and I devoured the nugget and in listening to that, and there's like crossover, right. Of a lot of like the themes and the training and energy systems and, and that kind of thing. Um, oh, and power company. I, I listened to a lot of those and like, you know, some, some guests crossed over there, like you know, Tyler Nelson or Drew Mack or whatever. And, and so between like all of that, I was like, okay, I actually think that I could, 
like make a go at training and, and, and get a lot better. And so, um, yeah, I did. I just, I just dove in and I got, um, training for climbing, like the book that, that Eric Hurst wrote, that's, you know, kind of like the Bible of, of training and started working through, um, some of the protocols that, that he outlined in there and just like simple stuff, you know, like seven, three repeaters and things like I just never done. Right. I just never had pulled on a hangboard. Um, and, and like more bouldering things that were just steeper and, and required more body tension. And, um, and then after hearing an interview that you did with Tom Randall, I ended up getting a, a lattice light plan, you know, where like a coach basically writes a 12 week plan for you, you do an assessment and then they'll write a 12 week plan for you. And so at that point, my highest grade climbed was 11 B and, um, and so, and like, I did the assessment and they're like, man, your, your fingers are really, really weak. Um, that's like, that was like the technical, <laughs> that was like their technical assessment. It was like, man, your fingers are really, really weak. So, <laughs> so like everything they had, I mean, like it wasn't a whole lot of work. Um, cause I had just up to that point, just gone to the gym and climbed until like, I couldn't close my hands, but it was really just like a lot of volume. Mostly rope climbing in the gym. Totally. Yeah. Like exclusively rope climbing tons of just like up downs on jugs and things that like I've recognized now that aren't it's more junk mileage right it's mm. very junk mileage stuff that I was doing good for maybe for building some endurance but that's not what was determined that I really was deficient in and so anyway I did this 12 week program that was not super complicated I just like did the things that came up on the crimp tap and um and then in in that next year so it was like a season and a half I climbed uh, 12C. And so I went from 11B to 12C by just kind of like focusing on some pretty low hanging fruit of, of what my deficiencies were. And I don't expect, you know, to like continue at that trajectory, but I think it just speaks to, you know, getting my mental game dialed and then focusing my training, like having an actual plan Hmm. um, and building up what I needed to climb the stuff that I wanted to do. You know, it was like, it's not rocket science, but I just, it blew my mind. Like it blew my mind how, how quickly I progressed and how many, and it wasn't about the grade. It was just like, it opened up access to so many fun routes. And like, Mm, I just like, I just am having so much fun now because there's just more in the book that I'm able to hop on, you know? So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really psyched. I'm going for 13A uh, this fall. Um, I think it's pretty ambitious, but you know, what the hell, I'm going to give it a shot. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Capitan in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I just watched the film a couple weeks ago. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, and especially if you loved my episode with Jordan Cannon, episode 115, or if you're a fan of Yosemite climbing and big wall climbing, then I'm sure you'll love the film. 
So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be. Or you can use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be. Or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents Free As Can Be. And we hope you enjoy the film. This episode is also brought to you by Petzl. I have been using Petzl harnesses, quick draws, and belay devices for more than a decade. I love this company and their products, and today I want to talk about helmets. One of the things we love about climbing is the unknown. Is that hold a jug or a sloper? Am I too pumped? Am I good enough to climb this route? We live for the unexpected. But no one expects to hit their head while climbing. Impacts to the front, side, and rear of the head happen when you least expect it. A foot slips, your rope snags on a rock, and you find yourself somewhere you don't want to be. That's why Petzl goes above and beyond UIAA and CE helmet standards to give you an extra level of protection on the top and side of their helmets. Top and side protection comes standard in their entire helmet lineup, so whether you're in the mountains or at the crag, you can experience the difference with Petzl. You can learn more and shop for helmets at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. Again, shop for Petzl helmets at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. And now, back to the show. I want to ask you this question because, and I actually have my own answer that I'm happy to share with you and with people listening as well. But for me, like I've, I've been reading and learning about training for climbing for so long. It's, I, I often forget about those light bulb moments that I had, you know, in the first handful of years, because I was really seeking and there wasn't much information and it's, it's hard to even uh, for someone who's just getting into it now, it's it's really hard to even paint a picture for them because now we're just awash in Instagram footage and, you know, there's so many ways to watch people train or learn what they do. Training for climbing podcast didn't really exist when I was starting to look into it. So yeah, right. I'm curious for you, like what were some of those really significant light bulb moments, if you can remember them, that now seem like just ridiculously obvious? Are there any things that come to mind? Yeah. Um, well, I was fortunate enough to uh, have a conversation with Eric Hurst, um, and and there were like light bulbs going off like crazy, kind of during that and and after that. And I just re I reached out to him after listening to all his podcasts, and I was like, "Hey, can I book like a Zoom session with you?" This was during like the pandemic, mm. and I don't know if he does a lot of that. I don't like. I think he took pity on me, um, and it was like <laughs> COVID, and I think he was stuck in his house, and he was like, "Okay." he's since become a really good friend, um, which, which has been nice. Cause he, he and his kids, like the red is like the home crag, um, for them. They're in Pennsylvania and they, they make a, a drive down. And so I've gotten to climb with him, um, when, you know, on occasion when, when they come down here, but at the time I was just like Gumby. I mean, I'd been climbing for a long time, but I didn't know how to train. I didn't know how to climb. And, you know, the kind of the, biggest light bulb moments that came from that conversation, as well as listening to a lot of the interviews that, that you had done and, and some of the other podcasts were finger strength, which just sounds so quaint now that I like look, but you know, cause like, that's like all we talk, well, all I constantly talk about on my show and like, you yeah. know, like it's just yeah. like finger strength is like the thing, you know, you put finger strength in the, 
title of something and it's already going to get like two times more clicks. I know that is, um, the, that is the best way to get downloads for an episode I've learned is to just put finger <laughs> strength in the title, which uh, I, feel, I have mixed feelings about. But anyway, yeah, please continue. Totally. This will be this will be like Ryan Dublin, finger strength in Hollywood, finger strength on dating shows. Um, yeah, it's like exactly. your, your interview with Magnus. Um, so, you know, so finger strength, but like, again, I didn't really know what that was, but essentially like, you know, ha- her hearing interviews with Tyler Nelson and talking to Eric Hurst, it was like, hey, just hang some weight on your body and do some like kind of short duration repeaters. So like, you know, the one that Eric suggested I do was seven seconds on 53 seconds off. So you're just going on the minute and you're doing like four or five of those or whatever it was. And I just hadn't ever done it, you know? And so like just doing that, oh, protein, that was another light bulb one. Like people talk about protein all the time or whatever. And he was like, just track, you know, I was like, I'm getting enough protein. Don't worry about it. And then I tracked for a few days and I was getting like way less, like zero protein, you know, I mean, not zero, I'm vegetarian though. So it's like, I have to kind of think about protein. Right. And so I added a shake and, you know, simple, simple interventions here. Um, I did some weighted pull-ups and, um, and then just started bouldering more, which I've always not liked bouldering. I really hate falling, which we've talked about. Um, it's not the act of bouldering. It's, it's that like, I just don't, like the idea of falling. Mm. And so, or like a ground fall, you know, um, twisted ankles or, or hurt backs. I've got a herniated disc and, you know, from playing hockey and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I just always like a rope. Um, but it became very clear that climbing a ton of 10 a at the gym on auto belay is not the same as, as climbing some V threes or V fours, mm. um, and, and like pulling some for me, you know, at that time, limit moves. And so just working those things in, we're like, aha moments. I just like, I stopped kind of thinking about workouts as going to the gym and climbing a bunch of fun stuff with my friends and thinking about training as like, it's training. And so put up a couple small things in the basement and just started doing those small things and eating a little bit better. And then the results just started happening. Oh, and the last thing was, Eric was like, you, j- you have to get out to the red two or three times more than you are. Mm. You know, I was getting out like maybe a couple times a month, you know, for six months, you know, maybe 12 times a year. And I've heard Tom Randall talk about this too. Like this is on a, a higher level, but one of the things they've noticed in their data is that really separates like elite climbers from, from advanced climbers is the amount of days that you can get out totally on, on real rock. And so, and Eric said that as well. He was like, you're just not, going to progress as fast all the training that you could do like it's a it's a three-legged stool you need to develop the tactics and the mental game out there and so i just made a real point of getting out once a week even if it was junk conditions and so like doing that and adding in some of these training protocols and you know going from 11b to 12c like i'm still like super weak compared to you know where i climb and i wouldn't consider myself a 12c climber like i'm you know more like I've done one, you know, I'm more like low to mid twelves, but, um, but I, I think like there's still plenty of room to go up. I think, I think, yeah. I think 13A is achievable this, this fall. Um, or maybe I'll get close, but you know, I think the, um, the gains aren't going to come as easy now because it was like, it was a whole new world that had been opened up to right, me. And those now, like gains. I've kind of, 
Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. I've, I've plucked the easy stuff and now I just have to incrementally work harder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll still make significant gains through the, you know, 13A and, and beyond grades. Um, yeah, that, that's so interesting. I have a couple thoughts that came up for me while you were talking. One of them is that, you know, that piece that you talked about, I, I think that Tom Randall thing, I, I think we talked about that in the follow-up that I did about, or the follow-up that I did with him about planning your training. That was one of the most dense, valuable conversations I've ever had on the podcast was a follow-up with Tom Randall early, earlier this year. And he talked about um, people that are drastically underperforming relative to their strength, they all had one thing in common, which was they climbed less than 50 days on rock per year. It was something like That's that. It. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. What just came up for me is that in my own coaching, I've done a little bit of coaching now and just in conversations that I've had with listeners that reach out, whoever, people that I meet, that seems like one of the biggest spots, um, sticking points for climbers where they have a really fixed mindset is you know, this is where I live. These are my circumstances and I can only get out rock climbing this often. And I always push back on that. And I want to push back on that for anyone who's thinking that right now, because if you're really serious about rock climbing, why would you not live somewhere where you can do a lot of rock climbing? Like that is the number one thing absolutely that you can do to improve on the rock, you know? And and changing your circumstances too, to hopefully give yourself a little bit more opportunity and freedom to actually get out and take advantage of the rock and the good weather and things. But, you know, so often people have this fixed mindset, like, no, I have to live in this crappy place that's seven hours from the rocks because of whatever, my job or family or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just don't see any reason why for most of us, I mean, there are always exceptions, but I think for most of us, if you care about this enough to be training for it and hiring a coach and listening to podcasts incessantly about getting better, like, why would you not take the steps to change those circumstances? You know, like find a different job, find a place where your family will love to live. That's closer to rocks, you know? No doubt. Yeah. Anyway, I just figured I'd throw that out there. I, yeah, man. I mean, I think typically, I mean, you can remove roadblocks. Like typically you're going to be able to find a good job and a good situation and an affordable area or whatever you need that is probably takes precedent over rock climbing. If, if you've got obligations or families or, you know, whatever it is, but you're still going to be able to find that likely closer. I mean, there's so much good rock climbing in the U S and internationally. I know you have an international audience, so, you know, like you can do it, but even if you're seven hours, I mean, look at Eric cursed and his kids like yeah that's great that's, that's a great I think point. it's like seven hours to the red and they would come in for weekends they would prioritize their weekends and their spring break and their fall break and this kind of thing and maybe you don't get to 50 days right i think 50 days i remember um hearing on that follow-up when tom was talking about it like thinking to myself well what's the what's the cutoff at like or what's the kind of fall off to 25 days or something like that because 50 days that's a day a week right um not everybody can do that, especially considering like seasonality. Um, you might get a f- few extra days in here or there on season, but you know, what, what is it at 30 days? What is it at 20 days? I'd actually like to see kind of how the, like the bell curve, like how that's affected. And, and maybe we can, um, we can wrap comment at some point in time and talk about that, but you know, 
you, you can get, you can get more days in. And that, that was what Eric's point to me was. I was like, man, I'm so busy. I've got a couple of jobs and the kids or whatever. He's like, bring the kids, do calls in, in, on the road. Mm. Like if, if, if you want to get better, just like you just said, he's like, if you want to get better, you have to put in more time on the rock and you can get stronger fingers. And that's great. That's really important, but you're, you're not going to progress as if you're climbing. And if you look at the climbers, you know, when I talked to Drew Mack, he didn't do any training whatsoever until he was like in the 14A range. Yeah. He was just climbing every day at the red. His training was climbing. And so, you know, if you don't have the luxury of being able to do that, totally get it. But if you really do want to get better, and by the way, it's super fun just to be outside anyway, like just do more. And so I just prioritized it. I just got out there more and that helped me with fall practice in the mental game, which was huge. You can't practice falling like on a spray wall. And so I had to, to put in more time out there just to practice falling for an entire season. Every single warm up I did, I would clip a boat bolt and fall. I'd climb to the bolt and fall. I'd climb past the bolt, a couple moves and fall. And then I'd climb to the next bolt and fall. Like for an entire season, I did that. And I was adding in more, more mileage at that time, getting out to the red more. And that's what helped me through that. And so whether it's, you know, a fear that's holding you back, which I think it was, or just some like technique or tactics or not having multicolored holds tell you where to go and all these things like so much can be addressed by just getting out more. And, you know, that was a huge, that was a huge game changer for me. And now my kids are old enough where they're climbing a little bit, which is cool. So now I can, you know, pull them out there. And if nothing else, like if I'm climbing something steep, I can get them on the rope after I lower down and let them swing and, you know, just like have some fun and, and dig around in the sand and all of that stuff. And so you know, it's really just a matter of prioritizing it. It's trying to pull those excuses away. And, and now, you know, it's funny is like, I did my latest lattice assessment and now I'm weak, very weak to the level that I'm climbing. So you had brought up kind of the inverse, like, Mm. you know, you're very strong comparative to the level at which you're climbing. Now my assessment came back and it's like, I'm super weak comparative to the level that I'm climbing. So I think that means I've kind of dialed in some mental game and some, some technique enough. And now the, the, kind of area of opportunity on the, you know, on the graph there is strength, finger strength. And so, uh, that's what I'm working on most these days. Mm, that's awesome, man. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you interviewed me on your show, one of the things that you asked me, um, and I've been asked this a few times, you know, people want to know, you've had all these conversations with these amazing climbers. What are the trends? Like, what are the things that, what are the big nuggets that you've taken away you asked me that when you interviewed me on the struggle. And so I want to flip that around and ask you a really similar question, but I think we need to kind of work our way there and talk a little bit about the struggle climbing show first. So I'm, I'm really curious, what made you want to start a podcast and what did you feel was missing from the climbing podcast space? It sounds like you were already consuming a lot of climbing podcasts at this point, but yeah. What made you want to start your own? Yeah, I... I... I mean, honestly, it was feeling like I wanted a, a show that had like a format to it. Um, I guess my background is, you know, in television. I've hosted a lot of shows. I've produced shows and, you know, I've, I've helped to create different TV shows and that kind of thing. And, and, and the thing about the TV business is that it's very formulaic. It's like there's like a five-act structure or a three-act structure or um, kind of like a hook to a format. And 
So it's probably like my time in that business that like I've just been groomed to um, feel comfort in structure. Maybe it's like a little bit of my OCD coming through. And so I've, I love so much of the content that's out there. I mean, you know, uh, I gain so much value from, from your show and, and Eric's and um, Chris's and, you know, there's Hazel and Mina's and like, I mean, there's just like such, such great stuff out there. But I found myself like, it was a little bit of a two-hander. I was like, uh, I think there's an opportunity for something that has a little bit, bit of structure here and something that's like a more condensed package. And that's probably like my, you know, having two kids and two jobs and not having a whole lot of time. A lot of the the shows would take me like, you know, for the nugget, it would take me like a week to get through a show. And then the next <laughs> one could, would come up. So it kind of timed out perfect, but like, right. <laughs> you know, 15 minute commute to the kid's school each way. And I would just kind of like chip away at it. And so, you know, when I started noodling on the idea of the struggle, the idea for the format came in before the idea for the content, which is kind of interesting. Typically, like I'm inspired by, by things the other way. Um, but I thought like, okay, I would like something that I can listen to and kind of know from week to week what that experience is going to be like. Mm. And so once I had that kind of idea or framework in mind and, and recognized that there wasn't anything out there that that was like that, then I've just always been fascinated with this concept of struggle. And, you know, again, it, maybe it's just like kind of my entrepreneurial background or like I tend to take on projects or get myself involved in things where the outcome is highly uncertain and failure, the, the rate of failure is high. And so when I listen to these interviews with pros or I look at them and I look at their Instagrams and that kind of thing, I always find myself more drawn to the posts or the stories that they talk about where they've failed or where they've struggled. And maybe just because it's just, it gets them off of the pedestal that I've put them on, or it gives me an opportunity to feel like I can empathize or I can connect with them in a way. But I just think that there's, there's so much richness in struggle, whereas, you know, the, the victory is, is really exciting, but just um, doesn't, doesn't feel as engaging uh, to me. And so you know, the, the idea for kind of struggle and connecting with my climbing heroes over what they struggle with is, was kind of what then took it from like this format idea to like, oh, I actually think the climbing community could benefit from something like this. That's when I reached out to you and, and we started, you know, having our, our conversations because I felt that the, the podcast landscape didn't need like just like another show. The shows that are here are doing it really, really well. You know, I mean, you look at Eric's and it's like heavily researched. It's like a a master class, like a professor giving, giving a lecture when his episodes come out. You look at yours, it's a long form, deep character driven, but also like embraces and loves the, the nitty gritty and like the nerdery of training and climbing kind of tactics and minutia. And so I didn't feel like I could add anything by just like doing a show like the shows that were out there, but I did feel like, Hey, if I could put together a show that's about 45 minutes every week, and talks to the best climbers in the world in different disciplines of climbing, in different areas of climbing, and basically asks them the same exact questions. What would that be like? Like, could we look back after a season of that and draw some conclusions? Would there be common themes? Would there be threads 
that that could be gleaned in looking back. And so that kind of like, I mean, that's the that's the idea that it landed on. I mean, I I went through like a bunch of different kind of iterations, and I talked to climbing friends, and I talked to friends of mine like in in the producing world, and and I'm really happy with where it landed because you know the conceit of the show for those who haven't listened to it is I do ten interviews with ten elite climbers, and I ask them the same questions in each episode: Where have you struggled in your training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and what did it teach you? And so from Emily Harrington to Alex Honnold to Lynn Hill to, you know, Alex Johnson, it, 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 you know, great, really accomplished climbers across big wall and bouldering and comp and these kinds of things. They all answer the same question, but they're all wildly different answers. Of course, it's deeply personal to their career and their life. And at the end, then I bring in those, you know, kind of these four experts. We talked about Hazel looking back at the mental game. We had Tyler Nelson look back at training. Caitlin Holmes looked at, um, nutrition and, and Eric Hurst looked at tactics and they look back and they say, okay, let's look at where everybody struggled in their mental game. Like Hazel looked back and said, where did all these athletes struggle? Were there any commonalities? And like the answer to that question was yes. Like almost all of them struggled with fear of failure. And so then we just talk about like, from her point of view, like why do they struggle with fear of failure? What does that mean for us normal climbers who also struggle with fear of failure? How do they deal with it? How do we deal with it? And so you know, I think kind of like looking back, I'm really proud. Like I'm proud of how it came together. I think there was some really cool insights that came out and what started as maybe wanting to just kind of have an excuse to talk to some of my climbing heroes and, and put together like a, sh a short form podcast that I could listen to has turned into something far bigger. Like, I feel like I'm like, I've grown as a person as a result and, um, and gotten good feedback on it. And so, yeah, man, I'm excited. I'm excited for what's to come and I'm incredibly grateful for your help th throughout the process. Yeah. Well, yeah, my pleasure, man. I just, you told me about this idea uh, for people listening. I do consultations. I do climbing coaching consultations and podcasting con consultations. And that's how Ryan reached out to me. That's actually something I want to talk about later. Cause you mentioned that you did the same thing with Eric Hurst. And I, w I would love to talk more about how you approach learning something new. Um, Cause I, I really, I really resonate with that. I think it's really cool that you seek out people that are doing what you want to be doing and make an effort to learn directly from them. I think it's it's a rare person who takes that step. So yeah, I'd love to come back to that later, but you're doing a great job with your show. You told me what your idea was and it felt like something that would complement what I'm doing really well. Totally different, like you said, very systematic or very um, regular format, shorter and uh, it just sounded cool. I wanted to listen to it, you know, so it, it's been a pleasure to to help you out in any way that I can. And, and I'm curious, like, so you focus on these four things, tactics, nutrition, sorry, training, nutrition, tactics, mental game. Yeah. What has surprised you the most or what has impacted you the most from each of those four? Are there themes that have resonated with you the most or is it something that one specific person you know, has said that's really resonated, like what are the things that have really helped you in your own climbing journey from doing this show and talking to all these amazing athletes? Yeah. I mean, you know, the first question I ask in every episode, of course, you were interviewed on the struggle. So um, you were in the hot seat. Uh, you know, the first question I ask is what's your relationship with struggle and, and how have you struggled in your climbing? Just kind of in general, like how do you, how do you see that concept? And so before kind of getting specific to those disciplines or those areas of focus, those have spawned some of the most interesting uh, answers, I think, and, and very personal answers. And one of the 
commonalities or like the, 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 the common threads that I saw come from that was, was one, all of these people struggle, like have struggled in their climbing and training and performance and continue to. And, you know, I had Alex Magos and Alex Honnold and Lynn Hill and, you know, like people that sometimes are so dominant in what they've done that you might feel that there's just a certain ease to what they do, but to hear from them, like, no, you know, I, I struggle and I continue to struggle. I don't know. It's like comforting in a way, you know, like, it's just like, it's so nice. Like it just, it, um, it, it really connects us all in, in this climbing community. And then what perhaps sets them apart from the rest of us is, you know, obviously a lot of natural talent, but I think that they all expressed in one way or another that they enjoy that discomfort that comes from struggle. In fact, they seek it out. Whereas for some, you know, when we, we push up against struggle or discomfort or failure, we want to pull back. We want to protect, we want to insulate ourselves. Almost every single one of them had said, no, 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 no. That's when I get more engaged. Hmm. And so there's, there's, there's a, a resilience there, you know, there's a determination, there's a psych level that's so high that like, I really started to feed on, you know, after, after having these conversations and, you know, try to be inspired by and emulate. And I don't know how much of it is nature versus nurture or, or what, but it was a, it was an interesting kind of theme. Definitely. Is that when hit with like the adversity of uh, trying a new discipline, Emily Harrington talked about switching from, you know, comp to sport to big wall. She was like, I, I was terrible at big wall climbing. I was, I was terrified to fall. I sucked at it, but I knew I wanted to do it. So I just kept going and I was okay with sucking. Like I wanted to suck because I knew that I would get better. You know, I don't want to suck. Like, like my, <laughs> my default is like, you know why I don't climb slopers? Cause I, I suck at slopers. And so when I go to the gym, like I'm not looking for compression problems. All right. I'm looking for like crimpy overhang, you know, things that like work for my body type, but not Emily Harrington. She's like, you know, she was talking about how she is terrible at comp style. And so she goes to the gym and she just does like a full day of comp style parkour stuff. Cause she's like bad at it and she wants it to humble her. And she knows it's going to make her better ultimately, you know, on the rock. So I think there was like a commonality there with all of them kind of embracing and seeking out struggle, which I found, you know, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. I, you, you captured that really well. I mean, I've listened to a lot of your show, but um, I really like how you just summarized that and I can totally relate. Like I can see the same theme throughout all of the conversations I've had on the nugget for sure. You know, um, leaning into difficult things and seeing things that you suck at as your greatest opportunity for improvement, you know, yeah. If that's what you want to get better at, of course, like it's okay to specialize and avoid things that you don't like. But that was, I mean, that was honestly one of the biggest turning points in my own climbing. This is, this goes way back. I was probably 22, 23, you know, four or five years into climbing, almost exclusively bouldering at that point, mostly climbing in the gym and then in Leavenworth on granite. And I really valued style. I really valued flow and grace. And I was a super slothy, slow climber, like three points on con, you know, like I never jumped to anything. I never like did a dead point. I was just like trying to be smooth. 
And um, a, a large part of that is because my fingers, my finger strength was pretty poor and I would compensate by climbing that way. But I really, I remember really being turned off by anything in the gym or outside that was thuggy, you know, anything that was just kind of like basic, straightforward pulling. Mm. And I remember thinking like, that's stupid. I don't want to be a thug. Like I want to climb beautifully. I want to climb well. And uh, it held me back a lot, obviously, you know, like it was a huge weakness and I was avoiding it. So it wasn't getting any better. And I remember having this very distinctive change of, of mind where I realized, okay, I can either keep avoiding this and diminishing it by just saying it's thuggy, it's stupid. I want to climb gracefully. Um, I was almost trying to put it below me, you know, I can continue doing that or I can realize that seeking out this style or anytime I get my ass kicked by a boulder because it's thuggy, like, no, that's a reason to get really excited. That's, that's the greatest opportunity for growth because I know I suck at this thing. I did a full 180 and I just started embracing and seeking out that style and just accepting that like, it's going to be humiliating sometimes, or I'm going to perceive it to be, no one else gives a shit. Right. But like, I'm going to, I'm going to feel embarrassed by how bad I am at it. But like, I have to go through that to get to where I want to be. Did you come to that realization yourself, by the way? Or like, how did that, how did that occur? Do you think? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I think I did come to that realization by myself, but it was also, it was probably helped. I was probably helped along through some conversations with friends at the time, with my girlfriend at the time. Cause I remember, I don't even know if she mentioned it, but I could kind of just like hear myself telling her, you know, like talking really negatively about like other styles of climbing and things. And just, mm. it just started to feel kind of icky, you know, like, God, I yeah. just have a bad attitude about, about this. And, um, I don't know, finally was able to just kind of put the ego aside enough to kind of zoom out and see, like, it becomes really clear if you zoom out, it's like, I want to become a lot better and stronger and, and well, more well-rounded than I am now. What's that going to take? Well, obviously I can't keep avoiding powerful climbing. Like that's not going to get me there, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah. Good for you. I, I think it's, it's, so hard our brains like it's like the evolutionary psychology like like we are constantly having to battle our brains trying to lead us towards comfort and away from discomfort and away from the kind of the harder path and towards the easier path i mean it's it's just been well documented huberman talks about this on um you know human lab all the time like it's just it's in there and so you know, it's really, um, it's really takes some, some awareness and then some determination to push through that. But then the rewards are so great, not just like physically, um, with like getting better at climbing, but also with proving to yourself that you, you can choose the hard path and make that the more rewarding path. Mm. Uh, so good for you for doing that. I'm, I'm, I know it more than I practice it. If I'm being honest with myself. You know, like I know I should be doing these things more so than I'm actually doing them. But I think like they're starting to build up like now a critical mass of where I'm, I'm not going to have many excuses anymore to <laughs> to ignore what's right in front of me. And, you know, that's kind of part of like one of my big takeaways from the podcast was was that like there is there's such a, a, a like a critical mass of certain things in each of these categories, you know, training, like common theme 
become more efficient on easier terrain and get rid of junk training. Like that was talked about over and over and over again from all of these elite climbers. And like, I can't ignore that. Like I, those are two things I should really pay attention to. Right. And nutrition, nutrition blew my mind too, because it was like, I just thought all of these climbers would have such dialed nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. A hundred percent. I'm like, yeah. Have you experienced this? Like literally almost everybody I talked to, except for Alex Magos, who kind of is like, you know, kind of has nutrition figured out at least for, for him himself. Just a fridge full of carrots. Just like, yeah, totally. It was just like, I just like, I eat carrots and legumes. Um, you know, like it's working for you, man. Yeah. But, but like everybody else was just like, oh yeah, like, you know, I don't, man, I don't know anything about nutrition. I'm just like, eating, I'm mostly eating junk. Like, I, you know, I was eating fish filet the other day or whatever. And like, you know, I don't know. There's something very, um, it's kind of humanizing too, because yeah. like I feel like the sport is still young enough where, you know, you don't talk to an NBA player or something like that. And they're like, oh yeah, I don't know shit about my nutrition. I just kind of eat whatever, like, we're still kind of at like the earliest stages of climbing where, you know, probably in the next 10 years here, these athletes are going to be far more dialed on their nutrition, but it was like, I don't know, it was really relatable to talk to a lot of these athletes and just, you know, hear about how like they just eat like whatever, you know, Jordan Cannon was like, I'm just like eating spoonfuls of Nutella in my van because like, I just don't want to cook anything because I'm too tired or whatever, you know? And it's like, yeah. I don't know what other a sport where like a sponsored elite athlete is just like, kind of like eating spoonfuls of Nutella. I don't know, but yeah, there's some of these, like these kind of these common themes that carry through some of which are really relatable, which I liked, like the nutrition one, you know, it was like, well, let's not take it too seriously. There's some things you can do to make your life better, but like, don't overthink it. Lighter isn't better. Don't worry about that shit anymore. You know? And I really had that in my mind. I was like, oh, lighter is better. But like, you know, that's kind of been blown up. You've talked a lot about that yourself, you know, on your, on your like reflections and your kind of Q and A's and that kind of thing. And so, you know, I think that's a refreshing, that's a refreshing um, advancement of our sport um, is, is trying to, to get away from like the overemphasis on caloric restriction and that kind of thing. And then the mental game really blew my mind too. So yeah, I mean, I'm just like, I'm learning so much dude, but I'm like drinking from a fire hose. I know you you experienced that too on the nugget. So it's, like you can't take all of the advice. You just have to try and pick and choose like what's going to be the most impactful for what I need in this moment. I love that. I mean, I think I think that was actually, I think that's worth highlighting because I think that was actually another light bulb moment for me and a really freeing realization to have through doing this show. Um, I was, I mean, for years before doing the show, I was always obsessed with like, what's the best way, you know? There's got to be a best way to get my fingers strong. There's got to be a best way to get endurance, whatever. And it's just so obviously the wrong question to be seeking and, and asking because, you know, I've had over a hundred amazing athletes that all climb insanely hard. Uh, they all do it their own way. You know, there's themes, there's principles that we can learn from and adapt to our own training, but there's clearly no one best fingerboarding training protocol to get your, your fingers strong or else we would know and everyone would do it, but everyone does slightly different things. And you know, once you realize that you can let go of, I guess, of that distraction, you know, like I no longer get thrown off by something I see on Instagram because I'm just not that interested, you know, like I've, I've got mm-hmm. plenty to work with for now. This is working. I've got a plan. I'm just going to see the plan through, see where that gets me. I can incorporate some new ideas next time. 
I don't have to do them all now. I don't have to throw my plan out the window and do something new just because Eve Gravel does it differently, you know, or whatever it is. It's just you're collecting information and ideas and, um, and hopefully starting to notice principles and themes. And, and that's the sort of stuff that makes, that's made a huge difference for me. Dig it, man. I think that's so critical. And, and I like how you even framed it as like, you've just kind of got more time. Like you don't, you don't get distracted. You don't get pulled down the rabbit hole of some new, like the hot new training protocol that you see on Instagram, uh, because like you're doing something right now and it's working for you. And I've heard, you know, other guests on your show, um, and, and you talk about this as well, like, you know, s- stick with the training plan f- for a long enough time where you can give it a shot to work. And, you know, like it's, it's very tempting to, to hear the next thing and jump to the next thing, but it really isn't like, we're talking about like nuance of a, an overall theme. Um, Tyler Nelson kind of talks uh, about this in a, in a pretty good way. Like I like how, I mean, he knows so much about sports science and physiology and training and, you know, climber specific stuff. But then you'll hear him like sometimes have a conversation. It'll be like, well, yeah, you know, just like walk by your hangboard and just like grab it and pull down hard for a few seconds. And then, you know, <laughs> go get your soda or like go, you know, watch some TV or whatever. And then when you walk back, like just use the other hand and then pull down on that one for hard for a few seconds. Like, you know, you're just stimulating your tendons, you know, and there's like, kind of like, obviously there are, there are, super dialed protocols we can all have. But at the end of the day, we're just trying to kind of create these, these stimuli, at least with regard to training, you know, right. the, mental, the mental aspect of it is a little bit different. And so that analysis paralysis that, that you've talked about, you know, in some of your Q and A's it's, is, is that like, you've done a hundred of these things, you've gotten incredible advice from incredible people, some of it even contradictory, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's working for them. And you know, maybe there's some common themes here, but let's not overthink it. I, I like that you you posted not too long ago, kind of like what you were doing. I think you're into like the beast, the beast maker, like after your interview with Ned, right? Like you're yeah. kind of gleaned a lot from that. And, you know, you're doing these like kind of short duration, like max, like one arm hangs and like, that's working for you right now. And, you know, in six months, maybe something else will be working for you and you'll share it and we'll, we'll, <laughs> you know, glean something from that. And, uh, it's kind of like, you know, the best training protocol is the one that you'll do. Yes. Yeah. And I love what you just said because you're so right. You know, I'm not doing Ned's Beastmaker protocol because I think it's the best thing out there. It just resonated with me. It fits really, really well with living in a van and my lifestyle and combining training with climbing on rock. And I can see how that will take me where I want to go. It's that simple, you know? So yeah. I figured I'd try it. It worked for him. It's worked for a lot of other people. So it's, it's proven, you know, there's not a research paper on it, but who, who cares? You know, like if it's, there's not that many finger training research papers out there. We certainly haven't right. tested every single protocol. So just pick something, you know? And I, yeah, and you're right. Like it's another thing that I've, that was a big aha moment for me was realizing we need to change things up from time to time, either because things are stale and we're not adapting anymore or because our goals change or because we address a weakness and then it becomes a strength and it's time to shift shift our gears and focus on something different. And so you can collect these ideas and kind of set them aside, you know, like put them in your to-do list for, put them in your like someday maybe list, you know, like maybe I'll come back to this and try this program when I just want to try something different or, you know, 
when I live in a van myself and can travel and climb on rock more or when I switch to more of a bouldering focus from a sport climbing focus, whatever it is, different things are are better for different people at different times for different goals. And yes, I think that, I mean, there's so much more context and, and nuance when you look at it that way versus what's the best way, you know? Yeah, dude, 100%. Is there anything else you want to touch on in regards to what you've learned from all these amazing conversations and how it's impacted your own climbing? I have some other topics, but yeah, I'm curious if you have any more thoughts. No, yeah, I mean, I, we, yeah, we didn't like dive like too heavy into um, into it, but you know, people can go check out the show. Um, and so, and so that's cool. But I think the, the mental game, I think is worth, worth touching on. That was my favorite chapter and, and significantly what drew me to the sport, I think draws a lot of people to the sport. It's, it's the playing field changes every single day. And, you know, a soccer pitch is, is the same or a basketball court's the same, but the playing field, it changes so much with climbing. And so tactics kind of the last two chapters of each episode are tactics and then mental game. And they, they often go hand in hand because it's like the 3d chess that you get into. And so, you know, I've just, I felt on the mental game side in particular, there were some really interesting concepts and, and insights from, from some of these athletes. Like maybe one of the, one of the biggest one is, is, was talking about fear and Alex Honnold comes to mind because, you know, I think I forgot, I think it was Chris Calouse was saying on a normal cast that the term rock climbing is Googled less than the term Alex Honnold or something like that. Like Alex Honnold is essentially bigger than rock climbing itself. Right. And so the, the, the common misconception is that he doesn't experience fear. And there's like this thing in like free solo where it's like his amygdala is smaller and all this stuff. And like, when I was talking to him, he was like, no, that's all, that's all kind of been mis misstated. He's like, I experience fear just like everybody else. Like I get scared of falling. I get scared of certain situations. Like I, I, fear is there. I'm not, it's not that I'm incapable of feeling fear. It's just that over time, you know, as he said, I've, you know, I've, I've developed these tools and he just kind of talked about like the tools that he developed, like he uses visualization to kind of visualize every potential bad outcome that could happen and deal with it ahead of time. So that when he pulls onto the rock, he already feels that he's dealt with that. Mm. Um, Hazel, um, Finlay on the other hand said that she doesn't like that. She understands like visualization works for a lot of people, but like for her, she likes to start a climb in a super positive mood. So she does a gratitude before we're pulling onto the rock and just talks about how grateful she is to have the opportunity and that the birds are chirping and the clouds are moving through the sky and that lightens her before she pulls on. Whereas her partner is more like she was saying, like, like Honnold, where he likes to think about like, you know, the piece of gear blowing, you know, on some like heinous E9 or something like that on the gridstone and like what could happen and what would it feel like? And so, you know, the what was so interesting for that chapter is again, like you were saying, there's no one right way. It's very individualized. I mean, the mental side, maybe more than anything else is, is highly individualized. And so hearing from these athletes, what worked for them or what works, works for them. Um, I, I found to be really cool and interesting. And, you know, Justin Salas comes to mind. He's, he's a legally blind climber. He climbs V double digits and he does like, all points off dynos. He's blind. <laughs> okay. Like, wow. Like wrap your friggin' head around this for a second. Like I couldn't, he's got great videos on his Instagram as well, but he's blind and he's doing 
all points off dinos. Like there's a V9. I don't know where it's at. Um, but a V9 that he did that, that like shows the video where it's just like a full jump to like a sloper, like in space. It's like on like a 45 degree angle. He's just like jumping out and back to grab this thing. And he like missed it like 50 times in a row, you know, cause he can't see it. <laughs> it's like the craziest thing. And then like, and then he stuck it and just like on the mental side of that, he just talks about how, like, we just have to kind of embrace, embrace like that, that fear and that void and the unknown and just say like, does, is this meaningful to me? And if it is like, I'm going to go for it. And so I just really loved that. Um, Hazel's recap of that chapter was really good as was Eric Hurst's recap of the tactics chapter, which had some of that in there. And I thought that was a really big, you know, like for me, those were the most kind of exciting breakthroughs that I had in my personal climbing. I love the training. I love the nutrition. I, I, I got a lot from, from those, but like, I guess maybe what I needed most to hear most was those tactics and mental game. Mm. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. People want to hear more of the details. They can go check out your show. Um, you came out with your first season, just guns blazing with a lot of really big names in the sport. And I was really curious, you've had this whole career in Hollywood as well. I wanted to ask you, who have you been most starstruck by in your life? Who are the people that come to the top of your mind? I mean, Lynn Hill, dude, I was a freaking wreck. Like I had to edit out half of that interview it should have been such a longer interview but i was like um god it was so cool when you did this like I, dude I, it was so embarrassing um <laughs> that's so that's so interesting though like so more than like proper famous red carpet hollywood big shots yeah yeah, yeah. i love it that's great yeah and i don't know why i guess i just have such respect for her and such admiration and yeah, I don't know what it was. I, I I didn't think going in, like going in, I was like, oh, cool. It's going to be like so cool to talk to Lynn Hill. And then we got on the call and I was, I was so dumb. <laughs> I, and I'm sure it comes through on the interview too. Like I, I tried to fix it in post, <laughs> as they say. Um, fortunately, it's not, uh, you know, the show isn't, uh, isn't um, presented as like an uncut live interview. It's very, again, as we talked about, very formatted. So I'm able to cut out um, in this case, parts where I was really stupid. I was definitely more starstruck with Lynn than like any celebrity I ever interviewed or worked with or any of that. I guess, um, you know, I've worked with some big celebrities. Um, I mean, I met Harrison Ford. Um, so I did the show called Brothers and Sisters, which was um, on ABC. And I played a love interest for Callista Flockhart, who's an actress for for those out there who are you know, in my age range and above, they would know her as Allie McBeal. Um, she's, she's been in a million things. Um, she's just such a talented, beautiful, wonderful human and, and actress. And she's married to Harrison Ford. And so she's older than I am. And I don't know how much, but like, I was kind of like the scandalous young love interest at, at the time on the show. And so we had all these crazy love scenes. Um, and that's always like weird to do because you're surrounded by like, 20 guys in jean shorts, like holding microphones and lights. And, you know, it's not, it's not the um, private kind of intimate experience one would, one would expect when you're like rolling around. Um, Can we talk about that a little bit more? Cause I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this is interested in just the mechanics of this. Like, how does that work? Are you like wearing flesh colored thongs and stuff and just, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got it. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's basically that. I mean, it's gotten better now. My understanding is now it's gotten a lot better and they bring in like um, intimacy choreographers um, is, is kind of what they're called, where, where they work with the actors to figure out like, what are you comfortable with? What are you not? Okay, let's roll here. Let's kiss here. Let's move your head this way. That kind of thing that's very new. That's like been like kind of a product of like the me too movement and, and is a very welcomed and proper uh, advancement in how that aspect of like show business works. But in my experience, it was like, you would just get with your scene partner and just kind of figure out what you all wanted to do. And then the director would say, okay, like, let's try this. And then you would just do it. And you know, it's, it's real. It's, it's totally weird. Right. Like she's married to Harrison Ford. I'm married to my wife, Kara. And, you know, now here we are wearing, yes, like tiny little flesh colored, like bikini bottoms and tops and that kind of thing. And like making out, like you don't fake the kissing. Right. And so it's like you're kissing and you're rolling around and it's supposed to be all passionate. And and usually it's not a big deal, but sometimes it gets real awkward. And, you know, it's um, Denzel Washington has this great quote where he, he was talking to a co-star that he was doing love scene with and he was worried that he was going to get excited, like physically aroused, you know, like, like during this, cause you know, sometimes you, sure. it's not like you can control that. Right. Right. And so he, he got in the habit of then pulling his co-stars, you know, his scene partners to the side and saying, look, I apologize if it happens and I apologize if it doesn't happen. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's nothing personal. Like, who knows what's going to happen here? And so, anyway, maybe this is like TMI, um, but it's it's um, it can be weird, um, but it can also be like really cool. It can be really fun to lose yourself in a character and in a moment, whether that's a fight scene or a love scene or um, a, a, a sad, you know, scene. I I did um, a few episodes of Grey's Anatomy where Mandy Moore was my wife, and she becomes like, like, um, it goes on life support and, um, I have to like decide to pull the plug and like say goodbye to her. And like, it was like this deeply emotional and hard, um, God, I just got like emotional just thinking yeah. about that. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, it was like really hard, but like, I kind of, you like, you lose yourself in it for a minute. And that's one of the beautiful things of, um, acting. And it's kind of like a flow state, you know, we get into when we're climbing or, or any sport, like you, you like, you lose time, right? You're in the flow state and like maybe three hours go by when you're running or painting or playing an instrument or acting, or maybe it's, you know, 45 seconds on a route or something like that, where you're like, whoa, I just kind of like was in it and I don't almost don't remember it, you know, and acting can really do that um, when it's really working. It's not all that common. Sometimes you're just like going through the motions and, and like, oh, I got to kiss this person now. And why did they eat that sandwich before the scene? And, you know, like it's more um, pedestrian and and all that. So anyway, yeah, we went down a little bit of a Hollywood rabbit hole there. But it's like, yeah, there's people around there and there's lights and there's cameras and, um, and it can be um, a little bit weird. But I would come home after those scenes and Kara would come up to me and kiss me right away. And she would be like, ah, just one degree from kissing Indiana Jones. Um, so, so she, she was totally supportive and into it. And, um, and like your, your question about kind of like the starstruckness, like I, I met Harrison Ford, um, when, when it once at, um, when, when I was working with Callista on that, on that show. And I was like, that was kind of a Lynn Hill moment as well, where I was just like, Oh my God, like 
Han Solo, Indiana Jones. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Harrison Ford is just kind of the greatest, you know, like yeah. one of the greatest actors of all time. Um, certainly for like the films that, that I've loved and grown up with. And so I've had a few of those experiences in Hollywood, but for the most part, I found that the, the, like the people are really cool and just down to earth, you know, like Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard are like friends and we would take my kid over there and like swim with their kids. And we would just like hang out and, and, um, you know, just talk about normal stuff. I mean, it's all, um, it's all for the most part, like the real cool people. Um, my experience was that like almost everybody that I worked with was really cool. There were only like a few folks that like, I'm not going to like drag, um, you know, through the dirt, but like that just like maybe had lost touch a little bit and, and weren't very kind, um, or, or very present. Um, but for the most part, everybody was just like really psyched that they got to do that for a living or get to do that for a living. And, um, I was very much on the periphery of that, you know, like I worked as an actor and I paid the bills as an actor for a decade, um, and still do sometimes, you know, now and then, but, um, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm just waiting for those huge podcast dollars to roll. When when does that happen, Stephen? (laughs) You're actually doing great. I I shouldn't make a joke. You're like, you're like killing it. So, so, you know, maybe, maybe I actually will pay some bills, uh, <laughs> making the struggle one of these days. I, I heard you on an interview the other day, maybe it was on the lattice. I think, um, Tom Randall had you on and you said you had like supplanted your, your income as an engineer now, um, with the nugget, which is like, so awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, I appreciate that. And I, I'm so grateful for it. It's crazy. It's still crazy to me. And I almost don't even know um, what to do with that or what's next, you know, like, um, so great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. It, it's such a gift to be able to do this for my job. And thanks to everyone listening who supports it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's the best. I think that was I'm with, happy. Uh, I'm happy for that $7 a month. Every time that seven bucks <laughs> a month goes, goes to you, I'm like, I just bought Steven a taco. And so yes. like, I just, I feel good about it. And I think that's, that's what you've built with the the nugget is you're not putting out like just content. You're, you're creating community. And I, I really am inspired by that and aspire to it. And, um, and really, I'm just really psyched about climbing in general. Like I think the climbing community is special mm. and it's, that's proven out by how they're supporting you, um, and how they support incredible environmental causes out there and social issues and, um, taking care of the crag and, you know, speaking up for, for what's right defending people, you know, in the community that have been attacked. I mean, it's just like, um, there's something really special about, about climbers. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful to be a part of it. Me too. I feel that too. Yeah. It's a, it's an incredible, it's an incredible community and group of people doing some really cool stuff. And I can say all the same things about you, man. I, I really love the show that you're building and I am really impressed by the, like you, you care very deeply about philanthropy and social, making a social impact. And you've done that through This Saves Lives, the nutrition bar company that you talked about earlier. Um, I'll be sure to put links to that. There's a bunch of other things we could talk about. I, I want to start wrapping up here so that I can go rock climbing and I want yeah, want to respect your time too. But so maybe we can save some of it for next time. But yeah, you started a forest school. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's up with that? Who does that? What, what's that all about? Well, you know, just like necessity is the mother of invention sometimes. And uh, just as you started the nugget because you felt that there was an opportunity to bring content out there that you wanted to consume and, and 
similar with, with me with the struggle was the forest school that I started. Forest school, for those who aren't familiar with it, is forest preschool or kindergarten. Um, and it goes through other grades too, but it's it's most commonly kind of forest kindergarten is like a catch-all for preschool and kindergarten age kids that go to school outside in all weather year round, you know? So it's, it's rain, snow, hot, there's no walls. And I became aware of, of that concept when my son was going to a preschool out here in Kentucky that um, was a really good, like progressive preschool, had a great outdoor space, everything that I would want. But then every time it rained, they kept him inside. And so I found myself keeping him home on rainy days and just taking him on hikes and just feeling the rain, not like having an umbrella or having a hood on, but just like, let's just go feel the rain. Let's just go be a part of it. And we'll come home and we'll dry off and then that'll be fine too. But the world comes alive in the rain. The worms come out and, you know, insects hide underneath leaves and different smells emerge. And this concept of good weather and bad weather is, is learned. It is not something that we're born with. Um, a child, to a child, there is no such thing as good weather and bad weather. There's just weather. There's just interesting stuff happening. And it's parents with their baggage that say, oh, it's a crummy day. Let's stay inside. And if we teach our kids that, we're really doing them a disservice because no, there's no crummy day. There's just opportunity to live and explore and experience. And so I became familiar with this concept of forest schools, which were um, have, are, are the gold standard and really pioneered in like the Scandinavian and Western European countries. The term kindergarten is a German word for, for um, children's garden being outside. And so again, it's, it's school that's held outside in all weather year round. And I was like, yes, please. And that didn't exist around here. So I took a year off and I trained under two of the kind of premier forest school programs. One's outside of Seattle and one's outside of uh, Chattanooga or in Chattanooga and brought this idea to the local nature preserve that my house is right next to. And um, fortunately they were like, let's try it. They took a flyer on it. And so I was like, cool. And so I stopped everything and started and ran a forest school for a few years and I'm still heavily involved in it. Um, and my son went through it. And now my daughter is currently in it. We have a seven-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And, um, and it's been awesome, dude. I mean, like there's no walls when it's, you know, 25 degrees out. These kids who are three to six years old are outside and they're geared up and we build fires and we got fire pits and we eat snacks and we stomp through the creek and we say, why, why is the creek not frozen, but the pond is frozen? And so these kids are learning so much. They're like these little scientists <laughs> and it's a nonprofit, you know, like I'm not really making any money on it or anything. Like It's just like something that I wanted for my kids and I wanted to be able to provide to the community. And now we have 70 kids enrolled and involved in the program each wow. year. It started with 14. Um, and so we're just like providing these life-changing experiences for kids connecting with nature. And how can you defend nature if you don't have a deep connection with it? Mm. Um, you, you can't watch a TV show about rainforests getting you know um, plowed down and devote your life to saving them unless you like deeply have a connection to nature. And, and if you don't have access to a rainforest, that's okay. Walk outside and get on your hands and knees and just like look at a dandelion for five minutes. They're miraculous, you know, like dandelions are incredible. Um, if you just kind of take the time, if you just become a kid and look at things through like the wonder of kids' eyes. So 
you know, having kids has really changed my life because you start to be a kid again. Mm. And I've loved that aspect of it in the forest school is just kind of like an extension of it. I love it, man. That's so cool. Yeah. Such a, so well said and such a powerful reminder. And it's so easy. I mean, I think about this, I've been thinking about this lately, like even living in the van and spending more nights than not camping out in the dirt somewhere, like under a tree, it's so easy to forget to do that. You know, um, it's so yes. easy to wake up, pack up the, you know, pack up the van, move some things around in my van, drive straight to the coffee shop and just sit inside, plug into the Wi-Fi, and get to work. But it's so valuable. I always appreciate it so much. Even, I mean, something I've been doing recently is just going on a lot more walks. Mm. Just just going on a long walk, not really worrying about where I'm going. You know, it's not that, it's really hard to get lost. Like you can always just turn around and go back the way you can't, you know, just like <laughs> right. take a random left turn, go that way. This looks cool, go that way. Um, but yeah. I hadn't thought about the camping aspect of, of what you're doing. That makes a lot of sense. I just assumed like, you know, you've probably got a pretty comfy bed in there and, and that kind of thing. But like the idea of like being at a campsite, is that, um, is that like based on kind of the, the climbing area that you're at or, or like, how often are you doing that? That sounds awesome. It, I know it does sound awesome, but the reality is most of the time I just kind of, you know, spend my days either at the climbing area or, in some sort of a town or city using the Wi-Fi or sitting inside somewhere and then just right. go park somewhere and sleep, you know, go park on some free BLM land or forest service land or something and sleep. So I'm, I'm rarely like embracing a camping experience, but that's something I actually want to do more often. Um, but yeah, it totally, it totally depends. Um, if there's free forest service camping, I'll do that a lot of the time, just find, you know, some dirt road and park on the side of the road, something like that. Um, yeah. it, you know, but if I'm in rifle, there's like a whole culture and community around camping and having fires and things like that at night. Um, same thing in Bishop, you know, um, it, so it just depends. Like when I was in St. George, I was living in a parking lot, <laughs> not super glamorous <laughs> at all. So yeah, it varies. Yeah. What do you do when you're in the parking lot and you got like those bright lights? Do you have like blackout curtains yes. or do you just find a dark corner? No, blackout curtains I think are key. I really like the two things that I'm probably happiest about in my van. Um, Cause I get asked this a lot. Like, what do you love about your van? What would you change? Whatever. Um, I have a van that has a lot of windows. So I have the full window on the slider door and then I have windows on the back. And then I have a small window above the head of my bed on the side of the mm -hmm. van. So there's a lot of natural light and I kept the build really open so it feels spacious and, and light in there. So I love that. But then with that, you have to invest and get some good blackout curtains. Um, I use cordelette or like parachute cord as curtain rods and just slide it on the, on the parachute cord. And then I use magnets like to kind of close the gaps, you know, just snap yeah. the magnets between the curtain and the metal frame of the van. Um, if you have Smart. light shining through a crack or things like that, yeah. And I just so bought some smart. blackout curtains on Amazon and then um, cut them to size. I actually, I actually had, I think it was a, a gear repair shop in Bend, Oregon that does like tailoring and things like that. You know, they mostly repair outdoor gear, but they do some other sewing work. And I just like commissioned them to, to make these cool curtains to size for me. So. Yeah. That's so rad, dude. I love, I, I love, you know, of course the grass is always greener and like I live in like, a house that's, you know, 
I got a basement and a spray wall and, you know, like I've got, I've got some creature comforts and a flat screen TV and air conditioning and all these things that, you know, kind of the Midwest experience affords somebody that's, you know, made some money and that kind of thing. Um, but of course I like, I fantasize on like van life, which of course you've done a really good job of talking about the pros and cons of, um, but when I went out, you know, I got, uh, like had like the dream opportunity to go rock climbing with Alex Honnold and Jordan Cannon um, out at Red Rocks, uh, not too long ago after I interviewed both of those guys for the show, they, they invited me out, which was very cool. Um, cause you know, they like, were just playing like tour guide for the day. Um, that's awesome. Were you in the area? Were you in Vegas for some reason, or did you fly out for that? Yeah, well, I was, I, I ended up flying out for it. I was supposed to be in the, area, um, for, for, um, to meet a friend there and, and have some meetings, um, that, that I had already had on the books. And this, this was kind of like COVID on the tail end. Um, and this massive ice storm was coming in. And so I ended up like having to cancel the meetings that I was going to do out there due to the the flight change. But I was like, there's no way I'm canceling this opportunity of flying with these guys. <laughs> nice. And so I flew in, ultimately just flew in to hang out, um, which was such a luxury. Um, but the ticket had already been purchased for my work meeting. So I got to kind of draft off of the, the flight that had already been covered and I got to hang out. So this is like van conversation. Um, but we can talk about the climbing too, cause that was a super cool experience, but, um, I got to hang out at, in Jordan's van for a while. Um, he was parked at Alex's just at, at Alex's house. Alex just kind of like, let's, he's like a, like a van parking lot service you know there's like <laughs> three or four there at the time you know just like random people popping their heads out of vans and being like oh you got the you got the beers over there um and this was pre-kid sonny was like mega pregnant i think she gave birth like a week and a half after i left okay um, um so i don't know maybe things have changed now that they got the little one um running around there but probably not they're they seem to be very gracious hosts to climbers um and i was scoping out jordan's van because like, that's of course the dream for those of us that don't get to live the van life is like having one and getting to go to wherever you want, climbing areas and hang out and, and just have all your gear right there. And now I'm curious to see yours as well to compare and contrast, but I was, I was very um, pleasantly surprised with how spacious it felt and it was in there. And, you know, like it seemed like super comfortable. We hung out and, and had some food and watched some you know, episodes of the office, you know, his, his favorite show in the world. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, I think you guys have the same van, right? Uh, as the Roadmaster, Promaster, the Promaster. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was super impressed, man. So I would, uh, maybe one day, maybe when the kids are like off to college or something like that, I can convince Kara to, to like van life with me for a little while. Yeah. She'd probably just be like, no, why don't you just go do your thing? I'll, <laughs> I'll stay at hotels. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's great. Um, yeah. If you have a van, like I think one of the big things is having a van you can stand up in. And if you have that and you have a good build out and you have a kitchen and all the things that you need, I've said this a few times on the show, like it moving into the van, like really didn't feel that different from, renting like an eight by 10 foot room from a friend of mine at his house mm -hmm. in Bend before that, you know, like, yeah, there's some creature comforts that you lose, but there's also just kind of this almost adventurous aspect to every single day. That's really fun. 
Yeah. And it's felt like that up until pretty recently. It's only, I mean, I'm two and a half years into this thing and it's, it's really only recently that I've started to think about or I've started to feel like I want a little bit more stability, at least in chapters, you know, it just starts to feel exhausting because you just, you lose a lot of efficiency. That's the biggest difference. I think you just lose a lot of time and efficiency in all the little day-to-day things. Um, finding a place to go use the bathroom, finding a place to shower. You can't fit as much food in your fridge, so you have to go to the store more often. You know, finding Wi-Fi, finding an escape from the heat if it's summer, you know, and you don't want to sit in your van all day. Um, Finding a place to record podcasts. You know, it's, it's all those little things that somehow just eat up a ton of time. Like more than you think, more than you would think they would. So yeah, that that makes, that, that makes sense. That's, yeah, that's the, the the dream version of it in my mind never includes all of those things. Right. So, so don't burst my bubble. On right. That. I, think, I feel like was it Chad Andrews that you had on the show that was kind of talking a little bit about because didn't wasn't he also he was repairing houses and like renting them. He was living in a van and that also, was uh, like, that was Brent Bargon. Yeah, he was working oh, at right. Black Diamond, living in the parking lot in his van. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like there's there's probably an opportunity there. This is just like the entrepreneurial side of me, you know, like always thinking where I'm sure living in a van, if you're doing it right and doing it smart, which, which you seem to be, you can save a ton of money. And so at some point in time, you know, you're, you'll, you'll have the opportunity to have a home base and whether that's a home base that you then Airbnb for a good portion of the year while you're out bouncing around, I'm sure you've thought about all of this, but it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me that, at some point in time, one would crave having the opportunity to just kind of like put some roots down somewhere. Mm-hmm, totally. And and like people tend not to want to be nomadic forever. It's exciting. It's it's an opportunity. It affords it, you know, the 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 opportunity to then have financial freedom and all of these things. But yeah, there's there seems to be something that's kind of human about wanting to like create your own little nook in the world. And so I can see how that would be. I mean, it, you've been at it for for quite some time now. I mean, that's uh, two and a half years, like in a van. Is that's that's pretty mega. Yeah, it's a lot longer than I had thought I would do it. I mean, I didn't know, but I I just wanted to commit to at least a year. You know, even if I feel lonely, even if I crave community, I'm gonna do this for a year. That's my commitment, and I didn't know what would happen beyond that. And um, it's been awesome. I've loved it. And it's, like I said, it's really only recently that I'm like, okay, what's next? I'm ready for not not a huge change, but some sort of a change, having a little bit more of a foundation, maybe spending six months in a place and then spending half the year traveling, moving towards something like that. Yeah, you kind of like the St. George area, don't you? I do, like yeah. I'm, I'm feeling a gravitational pull towards yeah. St. George. Yeah. I got to get out there and climb. If I, if I ever make it back to... Uh, because Drew's there as well, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and is is Seagrest there? Or is he in Vegas? Seagrest is in Vegas. Yeah. Joe Kinder right. is in Vegas. There's there. I mean, there's a. It's only two hours away, so you know, I. You end up climbing with a lot of these same people, but there's a there's a pretty amazing climbing community between those two places. Yeah, and, just, and so awesome. much climbing, it's insane. I'd I'd never well, I had climbed at Red Rocks uh, before when I was in my trad my trad days. I did epinephrine, which is um, just an epic, you know, multi pitch. It's I don't know fourteen pitches or something like that. You know, five nine, um, and it was it was eight mile lunch. Oh my god, it was like <laughs> there's like two and a half pitches in a row of chimney, and I was not you know 
I just like had not done enough squats. Um, I hate my it, lunch. I think you must be the first person that I have ever heard use that phrase. Actually, that's. <laughs> that's I don't really even know if I'm, did I use it right now that I, now that I'm. I don't know. I just it. <laughs> it's it's new at least to the nugget. So yeah, yeah it's like a bully. You know, the bully ate my lunch. Gotcha. Um, and so that that route was a bully. Um, but I was so proud of it. So for for anybody who's who aspires to do epinephrine, it it is ama- as amazing as as it's you know made out to be. But then I, I had an opportunity, you know, to to climb with Alex and Jordan, and I was talking about that. I was like, yeah, the only other climbing day out here was was epinephrine. It you know it took me fifteen hours um, to do car to car, and Alex was like, oh yeah, I um I, I got the speed record on that. I did that in forty minutes. <laughs> Like, like my brain melted out of my eyeballs and like obviously you 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 save time when you don't have you know pesky things like rope and gear and, and and these kinds of things but just like 40 minutes to do what what took me i mean it's 15 hours i think car to car maybe it was like 12 hours on the wall so if he's talking about just on the wall you know but still 12 hours to, to 40 minutes um i mean that's like less than three minutes a pitch that's insane yeah i mean he was just straight running up that thing and it's a five nine but like it's it's a lot it's 1300 feet you know like i mean he was just sprinting up this thing and there's like exposure and and like some pretty heady stuff and so that kind of set the tone for the day and they're like let's go up to mount potosi and we'll you know we'll just kind of screw around and it's all like you know mega hard limestone stuff up there and i was just flailing around but it was (laughs) You know, it was one of the best days of my life because like for whatever reason, we were the only people up there. It's it's pretty popular up there, but it was just the three of us. And we were like climbing, but then also like cleaning. Like it was very important to Alex that like, you know, crag, like there's kind of like two levels to it. And the upper level, like was just like covered in a lot of like rock and debris. And so like in between, we were just like sweeping it off and making it nice for everyone. And like building this little area that his daughter could just kind of like, be in the shade and you know it was like more like the the kind of the pedestrian stuff of the day that was that was fun i mean the climbing was was super fun and really hard and um but but great like great to see those guys do their thing and i got on this 11b kind of warm-up which was really great and then this 12a um that was very very hard that i didn't send um but like i made really good progress on and just like having them be like yeah come on go 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 and like you know it's just like you probably had this experience climbing with joe you know, and, and others that you've climbed with, you've climbed with, like, you're talking about Allison, you know, at Waco Tanks and these kinds of things. Like, you know, when you're just, when you're at the crag and you're climbing, it doesn't matter what the grade is. Like, if you're trying really hard at your level, people are psyched on that. And like, that was like one of the coolest moments for me was to climb with uh, these, these climbers that I've followed and idolized in, in Jordan and Alex, but to just be like kind of an equal with them. And and I was trying as hard as I possibly could on a 12A and they were trying as hard as they possibly could in these 13s. But like, we were all just like giving each other catches and asking each other, like, oh, what do you think I should do here? And like, just being super psyched to like try hard. And, you know, that's uh, just another thing that's so special about the climbing community. And I, I know you've experienced that yourself, but I, I had never, mm. you know, experienced that oh, until cool. this moment. And I was just like, wow, this is this is really special. You know, it's just a really special moment. Yeah. The climbing experience really scales. It's so relatable. Um, we're all really doing the same thing up there. And so even the, yeah, the best climbers that I've climbed with, 
they get it. Like they get it, what it's like to have climbing feel hard, you know? Um, totally. I mean, some of them s- sort of don't actually. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, some of them are so strong that it's, that it's hard to relate to them. But yeah, everyone's so supportive and um, you see that, you see the effort and the desire and the try hard and things. And it's just, it's hard not to root for that when someone else is throwing down. So yeah, it's super cool. I love it. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to, we, you and I should climb uh, at some point in time. I'm going to get you out here to the Red River Gorge yeah. even, or, you know, maybe I'll, I can be dragged out West. I, I was thinking about taking a trip to Yosemite this fall. I think you said you were going to be doing some bouldering out there yeah. maybe in, in the fall. So yeah. Um, maybe we'll cross paths there, man. I'd be, I hope be really so. I'd to, love it to climb. Let's make it happen. If it doesn't happen in Yosemite, let's, uh, let's make it happen in the red or, or somewhere. Yeah, for sure. I'd for love sure. it. I want to ask you two more questions um, to wrap up with. First one's about your climbing and then about the podcast. What are your hopes and dreams for yourself as a rock climber? I've been asking myself this a lot lately, um, especially coming off of that interview with Hazel Finley, where she was talking a lot about process mindset, and it's not about the green check mark. And so my, my hopes and dreams are, you know, in a broad scale that like I can continue to find like motivation, like psych to progress in whatever way, like I define that to be at that time. And so right now, like my, like kind of my, my current season of climbing that I'm in is wanting to push myself as hard as I possibly can on these steep routes at the red. And if I pin it to a grade, which Hazel tells me I shouldn't do, but if <laughs> if I do because I'm I'm just trying to like train hard, you know, it's like getting into the 13s sounds really cool because it opens up some spectacular routes at the red. There's just awesome stuff in the kind of like the high 12s, you know, low 13s, and so so that's kind of like my current season. Like my training is very much focused on that, like develop more power and be able to before I get too old and rickety here, um, you know, climb into some really fun routes at the red. I think like the long lens goal for my climbing is honestly to return to kind of my roots in trad multi-pitch. And so I I don't see my, I think I'll always enjoy climbing sport hard. And like, look, I mean, Eric Hurst is in his late fifties now, and just like recently climbed 13 C, you know, Chris Hampton climbed 14 a when he was 40, I think. And Mm -hmm. V 11 when he was 44. So like, you know, I mean, who was, um, Tim Emmett, you know, Mm -hmm. that you had on your show, he did Ayurveda at, at 40 or after 40, I think. Right. He hasn't, he hasn't sent it yet, but he's getting very close. uh, Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, like he's going to go try. He's as strong as he's ever been. Totally, you know, in in his forties, and so, like, he's going to get it right. Mm -hmm. Like, he's he's going to he's going to put that thing down. And so, Steve McClure climbed fifteen B at forty six. I mean, yeah, his hardest route ever at forty six. That's I mean, that's just so motivating to me because you know now I'm at forty three. Like the biology is is slightly working against me, but there's so much that can be done where I'm at. I'm a mid 12 climber. So there's a lot that I can do here. It's not like I'm like pushing the top of, of like what's possible for me. So, um, I'm really excited to progress in sport. And so that's my focus right now. I live near the red. That's where I'm going to climb, but I'm, I'm excited 
at the idea of being the 60-year-old that's just like flowing up some really cool climb at, you know, Indian Creek or, you know, like these kinds of like, or out in the valley, there's so much that can be done with experience and technique and confidence in that older age. And I like, I like, I, I look forward to that, you know, sometimes like it's, it's common to like for an athlete to lament aging or like, what am I going to be, you know, when I get older and like part of me like romanticizes it. Cause I've seen these guys just, and gals like just burn off, you know, the young kind of hard gym climbers as they just like flow up these routes. And like, I, I really look forward to that, man. I really look forward to those, to those like longer trad days and in, in multi-pitch and big wall. And maybe one day you will too. I know that's not something you're interested in, asking, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get you out there in those big multi-pitches one of these days. Awesome. That's great. I'm not surprised to hear that actually, because of your 10 guests from your first season, I noticed a lot of them are Yosemite experts. You know, you had Emily Harrington. I mean, Emily's done it all, but Alex Honnold, Jordan Cannon, Lynn Hill. Lynn, you yeah. know, there's like definitely a theme there. So um, I can tell I just that- love it. It's just magic for me. Yosemite, yeah. like the valley. And I've got one tattoo on my body and it's and it's like, ha- it's half done. Oh, really? And so, you know, it's, it's, I've just always been, yeah, maybe it's the John Muir of it. I don't know what it is. It's just, I mean, obviously the valley is magic. I'm not like, like the one person who's like, you know, news bulletin, Yosemite is really special. But um, I've always been mostly, mostly attracted to like the connection with nature. And so climbing is, is the avenue for me to truly connect with it, like really feel like I'm kind of a part of it and, and intimately connected with it. And so, um, yeah, it's funny that you noticed that about Jordan is the only other one that made that comment. He's like, oh, you've got a lot of big wall climbers on this season. And by, by the way, logistically, part of that was just like, the people that said yes. I mean, like it was a new podcast. I hadn't done anything. And and so like I asked, I reached out to people that I really respected and loved. And it turned out that maybe big wall climbers are just kinder than boulderers. <laughs> Dude, I think <laughs> boulderers are just like, I don't know. They're just like under a boulder somewhere, you know, they're so right. hard to get on the podcast. I don't know what it is, but I've been trying to connect with a bunch of them and it's been really difficult. I think they're just like consumed with what they're doing all the time. You know, that's my take. Yeah. And they also just like, this is a gross generalization, of course, but like, they're a little more punk, you know, they're a little, <laughs> they're a little less like apt to say, yes, I will attend this zoom meeting in two weeks at this day and time. Sure. Cause like, yeah. they're like, who the hell knows where I'm going to be in two weeks. You know, it seems like so, but that's, not to say that you haven't had incredible boulders on your show. Um, you've, you've, you've had, you know, some of the best of the best. So yeah, maybe I'll, I'm going to aim for more boulders next season. Nice. Now, now Allison has to do the show. Um, <laughs> so I can, I can follow up with her Perfect. about her TV viewing. Perfect. I love it. Okay. Well, let's dig into that then. So what are your hopes for the podcast, the struggle climbing show? I appreciate, um, we hear that, this is where I've been right now, right? Like I'm, I just concluded season one and I'm planning season two. Now, by the time this comes out, I might, I might be into season two, but like, I, I appreciate that kind of thought process. Like I, I take that part of things really seriously. And that's why I wanted to build seasons, honestly, was so like I could have some time to kind of regroup and look back and say, well, what worked and what didn't and, and what can I try to do like better or, or different going forward? And so I'm kind of going through that process right now, but like essentially... 
I'm very happy with a lot of what season one offered to the climbing community and, and to me as an experience. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not going to make um, drastic changes, but I want to get more. Um, I, my focus is to try to get even more diverse perspectives into season two. I, I really appreciated my interview with Fabia Dubik, who of course you've had on the show. And that interview took like this left turn in the mental game section and just dove head first into racism in the world, in the medical profession where she, you know, mm. experienced a lot of racism. Uh, and, and also in the climbing world, she talked a lot about like, there's two crags, there's two gyms. There's the one that you go to. And then there's the one that I go to. Hmm. And like that part of our conversation really got me. And I, I just like recognized how, you know, it's the struggle climbing show is kind of a performance podcast. It's, it's asking elite climbers where they've struggled and they're training nutrition tactics and mental game and what they learned. And so like, that's the focus of it, but that's not, I don't want it to limit the abilities to, to have deeper conversations. Jordan talking about, um, you know, coming out as, as a gay climber and, and Alex Johnson as well, or, or Justin Salas, his experience as a blind climber. And like, what does that mean? I mean, God, he talked about like the hardest thing for him isn't the climb. It's getting to the climb. Hmm. He can't drive. He can't like, it's hard. He can't do an approach without somebody there to say, Hey, like, follow me this way. This, this is where the boulder is that you want to climb. I mean, he's, incredibly independent and he has done it, but like, he also talks about like getting lost and turned around and, you know, maybe the Uber driver doesn't, or he doesn't have cell service. Like, you know, so I think touching on some of those, um, working more of that into season two, I think is going to be really important for me as I reach out to these athletes, there's only 10, you know, like I hold myself to 10. And so I want to, um, I want to bring in more diversity in climbing as well, you know? So I want to have more comp climbers. That wasn't a big area of focus and it's a huge part of the sport. So I want to focus on like, what are the struggles in that? Like, what's the effect of that pressure? And, you know, and then I of course want to talk to some of my heroes. So, um, I just had a good chat with Tommy. He's going to do the show really excited about that. I mean, nice. the, tr the trad daddiest of them all, like, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's no one that I'm, I'm kind of, want to aspire to, I think more so than, than, uh, Tommy and in, in kind of how he climbs and how he dads and, you know, the, <laughs> his book, the push like really had uh, an impact on me. And so, yeah, I'm excited. We've got some really cool names, um, already like lined up. Um, but I, I want to make sure that I'm also telling stories that aren't as, um, maybe frequently told if that makes sense, something you do really well. So of course that makes sense. I was just thinking like, yeah, I, I love the direction that you're thinking of taking it. And um, yeah, I, I resonate with that big time. That's become not only more important to me, but also just more interesting and, and more fun for me. And I really feel the longer this thing goes on, the more I'm, the more grateful I am that I didn't brand myself as a training podcast because there's just so much more to talk about, you know, um, there's so many more stories to share and Podcasting is amazing. It's it's such a powerful way to deliver the human side of a person's story to to everyone, you know, to everyone listening. Um, it's unpolished. It's so you feel that they're human, and, and you feel that you're not that different from them in, in so I many ways. And it it helps. It just helps break down so many of those us and them barriers that we construct as a society. Um, hopefully, you know that's that's um 
yeah, I don't know if either of us are going to change the entire world with climbing podcasts, but I love it. I love what you're, uh, I love what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, we can, we can certainly try. I mean, if we, if, if everybody can just, you know, try to be a little kinder or, or, or just bring in some, a little more understanding or perspectives, it's, you know, that's a good thing that I just, um, recently listened to your, um, interview with, um, Zofia Raich. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that. Rake. Um, yeah. Rake. Um, her accent's so cool. I'm just like, I could listen to her talk all day long. It's, it, it's so good, but, um, Oh, see, I already, look, I already did. I, I, their accent is so cool, right? It's, <laughs> it's um, because they're non-binary. Um, right. I, I learned so much in that interview, man. And I like, I, I learned about climbing and like about font and like the climbing styles and all that. But um, their experience, Sophia's experience with autism, with their aut- autistic experience, like it just like, it was so informative, but also so entertaining, you know? Yeah, like, it was yeah. just like the, the way y'all tackled that, that part of the conversation and the way they shared what the experience was like. I just loved it, man. I mean, it was, you know, it was, there wasn't even a whole lot of climbing like beta covered or whatever in that that interview. The the, the book is, you know, fascinating. I love the history discussions of it, but just more like the personal experience I thought was, was really cool. And so um, I'm, yeah, I I love, I love what you're doing. I aspire to, to try to work some more of that into my show. Um, I, I won't be able to do it to the extent that you do because because I'm holding myself to these really, this kind of short form nutrient rich kind of like try and try and get in and get out um, for the, for the busy person type podcast. But I, but I want to try and make sure that I'm, I'm not just resting on the fact that like, Hey, here's a big name in climbing and let's hear what their finger training protocol is. And so, yeah, I aspire to that in season two and I guess we can, uh, we'll see if I pull it off. (laughs) Awesome, man. Well, yeah, I mean, remember that you can't do it all either. You know, I have to remind myself that a lot. Like there's so many stories I want to share, so many topics I want to cover, so many people I want to talk to and just one week at a time, one episode at a time, you know, but we can only do what we can do. And, but yeah, I'm sure it'll be really great. I'm excited to listen. And uh, this has been awesome, man. It's been really fun to get to know you a little bit better. I was just, I was just thinking back this morning to when you reached out to me. You booked a consultation to learn about how to make a podcast and to see if it was something that you really wanted to do. And I remember, we, I was in Rifle, Colorado, the town of Rifle, Colorado. I was on a rest day in my van, and I just remember, for whatever reason. I always do Zoom calls on my hotspot. I record a bunch of podcasts that way from the van. It almost always works. And for whatever reason, when you and I were scheduled to do that consultation, I just had the worst phone service ever. <laughs> like sitting in the freaking grocery store parking lot and rifle. I just, I think I dropped the Zoom call like five or six times when we were talking, but you were so kind and so patient and you were there to learn as much as you could. And, um, I just thought it was really cool. I thought it was really interesting, your background and and where you came from, coming from television and movies. That was just so, like I said at the start of this conversation, so, and is still so otherworldly to me. I just know nothing about it. And um, that you've come into climbing in your adult life and are falling in love with it and thriving in it, you know, in your 40s and, and then already just paying that excitement forward in the show that you're creating and and sharing these amazing stories with people. It's, it's super cool, man. So it's been really fun to, to get to know you over the last handful of months and then a lot more deeply in this conversation. Um, Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for your time. 
dude, thank you. This is this is a real joy. You're still getting what you do. I felt very well cared for in this interview, which I appreciate. Usually I'm on the other side um, asking the question. So um, this was a nice experience for me. And um, yeah, man, your help, your help throughout this whole process has been great. So let's, um, let's get climbing one of these days, man. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. I'd love it. I look forward to it. All right. Take care, man. I hope your uh, power's back on at home so you can get out of your parents' basement. I hope so too. But if not, I got all the junk food I need right here, so I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Good to see you. Take care. See you, buddy. Hey, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan Devlin. If you want to check out The Struggle Climbing Show, I put links to all the things and all the episodes that we referenced in this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com in the show notes for this episode. So you can check that out there. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Arcteryx film Free As Can Be. I watched it a couple weeks ago. I absolutely love the film. And if you love climbing, I'm sure you'll dig it. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Don't forget to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl helmets at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com and get top and side protection to keep your noggin safe. If, God forbid, the unexpected happens, you can experience the difference with Petzl. And be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to Crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. It's available on iOS and Android. And try it out for free. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts created by professional coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor of Lattice Training. It's awesome. The flexibility workout I've been doing is called Hip and Leg Flexibility. So download the Crimped app and go check it out. Also, be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage. If you want to try their supercharged collagen or any of their other incredible nutrition products, then head over to fizzyvantage.com and use promo code NUGGET15 at checkout for 15% off your next order and get ready to feel the Fizzy Vantage. And that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for listening to the very, very end. I'd love it if you could leave me a review, if you have a second to leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. That goes a really long way to help out the show. I appreciate you guys so much. I hope you have an amazing week. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Like we do it, 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 like we do it